This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how does the army feel about you being head of the temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to Co-host Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today we're stepping up to the plate, I think, for a big showdown with a <laughs> towering figure of the American so-called left. Uh, it's not the first time we've sort of taken a few uh, drive-by shots at this figure, but We've always yeah. said that one he day. Came up in, he came up in our very first episode. Um, yeah. We had a little bit. Uh, well, you mostly did. I like don't didn't really. I feel like I learned a lot in like preparing for this episode about about uh, this individual uh, Noam Chomsky, uh, mm-hmm. because like previously I wasn't really like you know big into him. I like had a vague awareness of him, obviously, because. Really, like something that I came to appreciate uh, in doing the research for this is like what like uh, significantly influential uh, intellectual, like public intellectual Chomsky is. You know, I definitely has kind of aware of him as, you know, like the anarchist guy or whatever. But I guess mm-hmm. like really, if you think about it, like he is really super influential, and like there aren't too many like uh, academics or whatever uh, or uh, intellectuals or uh, people like that who. Are so widely known so even my peripheral knowledge of him is really a testament to something but yeah, yeah like uh prior to doing this i really didn't know i knew like that he basically was just like you know an anarchist but i mean uh apologies to any anarchists uh, who may be listening but <laughs> like you know uh people are like now kind of realizing that chomsky is like sort of like a lib like uh in a lot of ways uh yeah you know, yeah not, like is that like fully fair like maybe not you know he does have some good critiques throughout the years of like american empire in ways that like you know your standard libs wouldn't offer but he there's does. something like you know uh there's like if you're just an anarchist like it's a little bit like of the sort of Marx versus Steiner thing of like the Berlin professor, you know, like mm-hmm. uh, everything is like an abstraction in his mind. So like, yeah, okay, of course you can. Yeah, that yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess he that, did like you know civil disobedience or whatever, you know. So not to. Yeah, he you know, d- well, yeah. he did. We'll we'll get to that. I mean, he has had a towering impact, and he's like still going. I believe he's is he ninety one or ninety two at this he's, point. Yeah, something. He's like a nonagenarian. 
I, I, I was going back and watching some of his most recent appearances on various uh, left media outlets uh, on podcasts and YouTube. I mean, just in that, you basically see the immense influence that he's had over uh, what uh, one piece we're going, one critique we're going to read has called the compatible left. Um, that he is treated, you know, as a saint, and he still has this energy that is pretty indefatigable, I would say. You know, watching videos of him from the 70s and then, like, the 2000s, like, during the Bush years, and then watching him today, I mean, he certainly is uh, more elderly and somewhat more frail. It's kind of ironic. He has, like, a big, bushy Marx beard now ever Mm -hmm. since the pandemic, uh, which is kind of funny. Um, But he still, you know, it's like he still, it's like he... He he has his kind of takes and like he just in this in that same exact tone of voice that he always talks about everything just sort of dispenses the wisdom and all of the hosts on the show basically just lap it up and nobody ever really pushes back on or if they do it's like an incredibly polite way they always preface coming him on by being like oh my god i'm just so excited man dude like chomsky he's literally my idol he's like my favorite he is the greatest like living thinker that we have and like yo he really opened my eyes you know like when i was in college just like thinking about girls and beer and shit and then like you read like one chomsky book and you're like whoa wait a minute man you know it's like that that kind of people have a very strong sentimental yeah. attachment well, what do you to think chomsky. Of the book by chomsky that people have read uh like what's the like you know like political book by chomsky that like you know is the i would popular? say the one that i hear uh kind of mentioned most often is manufacturing consent oh yeah that, uh-huh. okay so that, that's that one and then reading, i yeah. remember reading a chomsky book in high school like i had I, i'll fully confess to like i had that like getting chomsky pilled moment in the early 2000s when i was yeah probably like i don't know a junior in high school around the time that the uh iraq war was starting i think what i read oh yeah here it is i think it was called hegemony or survival america's quest for global dominance which came out in 2003 oh you know what i also read failed states in 2006 that so okay Mm -hmm. i think this went into when i was in college as well definitely had a kind of chomsky phase and i actually remember now this one's coming back to me failed states you have the big scary red cover um and it's actually kind of an iconic Chomsky book because it kind of starts with a hmm I will explore this as we talk more about him I guess maybe I don't have like a, a term for it maybe you can identify it but kind of a thing that Chomsky does often where he says uh well you well you know the the Bush administration uh, is going around the world and unleashing military dominance all over the Middle East because he says these are failed states but actually if you look at it according to many uh, respected social scientists and statistics America is actually uh, has all the characteristics of a failed state and thus we yeah, should overthrow cool. ourselves if you want to be ideologically and logically consistent about it 
like basically uh, if i could Shotsky do it impression like what like I, what is I, going I, on here <laughs> with these impressions uh, i watched a lot like, of i watched a lot of chomsky and listened to a lot of chomsky i feel like i yeah, really that, modulated it uh, uh, to uh okay. to a t yeah, but thank you um, um and i feel like that is kind of like failed states in a nutshell but of course in the in doing so he he kind of goes through um i forget the exact you know i think he does maybe talk about iraq but he talks about afghanistan talks about places like somalia or sudan a lot of places in the global south south and all of the and i think he does talk about you know there there are things that you know probably were aided and abetted by the u.s and all of these countries to prop up the worst kind of dictators and right-wing pro-corporate regimes and you know etc etc um but i think there's a lot and again you see this on a lot of chomsky he starts to get into kind of languages about, like, I mean, the, the subtitle to the, to the book Failed States is The Abuse of Power and the Assault on Democracy. Now, you can already see right there, that's a little bit of like a wishy-washy NGO, like human rights watch adjacent kind of way of framing, you know, or like an open society like George Soros, like a kind of thing, or even, you know, National Endowment for Democracy, for that matter, where basically you have an, a, an eminent American complaining about the erosion of democratic norms, but doing it from, like, a very Western perspective about, like, I don't know. I mean, not not to, like, totally erase, like, that, yes, those things are bad when, like, democratic norms get, like, you know, crushed, but there's a kind of... This is where his anarchism really shines through, is his kind of... um his opposition to things like he would call totalitarianism or state authority. And of course, it should come as no surprise to anybody that that basically included most of the like actually existing socialist states uh, of the 20th century, which uh, particularly the Soviet Union, he was like vehemently opposed to and actually uh, celebrated their disillusion in the 90s and said, you know, like, it can only be a good thing for the world if this tyranny is washed away you know or something like that of course mm-hmm. he's been very critical about um kind of like the neoliberal assault on those countries and uh, various forms of u.s imperialism but i mean that's just yeah. okay but i mean i but, think you, you can know. see like kind of the contrast actually in the comparison between his debate with sam harris or his debate his exchange via email uh mm-hmm. with sam harris kind of like yipping uh and biting at his ankles like begging for a debate you know where he makes like a very good point uh and a series of good points uh based on you know his uh his earlier writings about the al-shifa bombing you know and the sort of like red herring uh in sam harris's argument and the like uh really kind of exposes the absurdity of his his position about like how well you know al-qaeda like they're you know they're they're muslim basically so like what they do is evil but like if we you know uh, like because like we you know mean well what we do isn't as bad uh, whereas mm-hmm. of course like everyone means well like even like Hitler you know meant well yeah. Uh, yeah. like yeah, so uh, like but you know then if you consider like Chomsky's debate with Foucault like kind of what you're talking about in terms of his attachment to democracy and things like that uh, it really does come out you know Foucault brought out the point that a lot of the time these sort of revolutionary impulses when they imagine sort of the the utopia like what's going to be achieved by the revolution they're so epistemologically bound by the terms of the existing order uh that their imagination of that is based and rooted so heavily in 
like what currently exists like uh you know uh, yeah for yeah talking, like, that, and that was value. Foucault's uh critique yeah. well and for anybody that that doesn't know what we're referring to I would highly encourage going to watch it because it's just uh it's it's well-produced tasteful television and very entertaining given the personalities involved but there was like I think it was a Danish TV show that had a series of like philosophy debates in the early 70s and there's a very famous one where Michel Foucault and Noam Chomsky uh, debate one another on questions like human nature and uh, political, you know, uh, radicalism and, uh, you know, ontologies of the kind of everything. They talk about Lomsky's, Chomsky's linguistic stuff. They talk a little bit about, I feel like Foucault, I'd have to double check, I feel like he was still a little bit in his Maoist phase. He hadn't gone mm-hmm. kind of full neoliberal. I think I saw a tweet the other day that said, uh, like Foucault went to Death Valley in the seventies and dropped acid and became a neoliberal, and they were disappointed. Um, that, like Adam, Cur- <laughs> Adam Curtis Foucault didn't ever became a that. neoliberal. You know, like uh, I think it's a little bit much. I mean, but, he became. Yeah, I mean, I'd say you know a, a, a kind of postmodernist, I guess you could say, or a post-structuralist, like that kind I mean, of thing. Um, he was always I mean, post-structuralist. But you could cr- yeah, you could critique right. that as kind of broadly compatible with neoliberalism or like as the CIA felt like kind of uh, paving the way for yeah, well, like a new paradigm. But, you know, yeah, I, I mean, I actually like think all that all this stuff is compatible with with neoliberalism. But it is. It is. Uh, they both are, which is funny. In that particular uh, debate demonstrated a little bit more self-awareness. Um, yeah, you know, he did. Uh, he did. But, uh, and I yeah. think, you know, while he did critique, uh, I think specific one of the few specific times he kind of critiqued like the Soviet Union was when he was making that very argument that you just mentioned about how like these people take power, but then their imagination of like a better, a new, better society is still rooted in like a bourgeois Aesthetics like bourgeois standards, like bourgeois ideals, and like you know, it's bourgeois that, bourgeois this, bourgeois. Yeah. That. You know, yeah. I love that. Right off the bat, Foucault kind of fucks with Noam Chomsky a little bit by refusing to answer in English uh, mm-hmm. and only yeah. replying in French, which yeah. seems to cause a lot of like confusion. Yeah, and, like, yeah, fuck yeah. The well, up. yeah, it kind of is a flex because Chomsky, you know, is this linguist and everything, mm-hmm. but he's obviously like you know not kind bilingual. Of, uh, not really, like, um, you know, kind of struggling to understand what Foucault is saying. In, in You're right. Life. That was a real uh, power move. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was um, a real but, European yeah. power move right there. But I think at the same time, uh, Foucault made an interesting point, and he was kind of, like, playing with Chomsky a little bit, like a cat with, like, a mouse. Like, that's... Mm-hmm. I, I yeah. think maybe my earlier description of him wiping the floor with Chomsky was maybe a little bit too uh, 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 eager of... Uh, description uh but i still think that he kind of uh runs circles around him and chomsky yeah you can see how chomsky's like what he's standing up for is kind of um i don't know chomsky has like this script this internal script and like these sort of like stances that like he rigidly kind of sticks to and he doesn't know how to like debate people who come at him from a different angle he's very good at debating a lunkhead like sam harris you know that like that's kind of when he's at his best but when Foucault kind of says like basically talking about like what is this like justice and like rights and 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 thing you're talking about like if there is a if there's you know uh if there's a class struggle going on and the proletariat takes power uh he says something along the lines of it's like not they have the right to take power even if it causes violence along the way because they are ending a greater oppressive system of class domination and Chomsky kind of like can't parse like he can't quite like process this 
and it like keeps falling back to like yeah but if i forget do you remember do you remember that part of it it's almost like like chomsky's uh like what it sounds extremely it's like his liberalism gets exposed basically when foucault yeah. challenges him on like why shouldn't the working class take power if it's like it's why are you yeah, appealing well, to this abstract notion of justice, of justice. yeah and yeah. basically saying like the idea of justice is that our idea of justice is based in like the current episteme you know yes. uh yes, and that exactly. he doesn't necessarily believe that if this proletariat uh you know revolution occurred that uh the concept of justice would be applied and chomsky obviously thinks that uh it you know uh it should be and that's like that was one of their their biggest disagreements that uh, that that emerged uh, in that in that debate. Um, and Ch- and, Chomsky, couldn't, yeah. he he couldn't quite get past. He really he starts appealing to the Bill of Rights and says well, that it's yeah, like that you was, know that was the thing that was really like great. You know, like uh, you know Foucault said like uh, you know he's like I want to ask you a question. In the United States, you commit an illegal act. Do you justify it in terms of the justice or, or in terms of justice or of uh, superior legality? Do you justify it by necessity of the class struggle, which is that uh, the present time essential for the proletariat in the struggle against the ruling class? And Chomsky says, well, here I would like to take the point of view, which is taken by the American Supreme Court and probably other courts of circumstances. That is, to try to settle the issue on the narrowest possible grounds. I would think that ultimately it would make very good sense in many cases to act against the legal institutions of a given society, if in so doing you're striking at the sources of power and oppression in that society. However, to a very large extent, existing law represents certain human values, which are decent human values, and existing law, correctly interpreted, permits much of what the state commands you not to do. And I think that's important to exploit that fact. It's important to exploit areas of the law which are properly formulated and then perhaps to act directly against uh, those areas of the law which simply ratify some system of power. Uh, mm-hmm. So he kind of is holding on to the idea that there's something positive in these institutions that kind of comes out uh, later when he's directly asked by an audience member about like, oh, you know, that, was cons- best. that was the yeah, best. That was the best. Those, those students. MIT, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, we'll, um, get, we'll get to that. I mean, and his answer was so kind of unconvincing and just lame. I thought. Yeah, um, right. He and, and uh, I mean, he even ended right. up, I think, saying that it was like a credit to like a you know MIT and like the American system that you know uh, th- that they were able to tolerate him, uh, even though you know it's like it's just it, it brings to mind something like extremely glaring about Chomsky's entire record, which is like that 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 young uh, that young Danish man you know, really hit on the head, which was like, how do you reconcile these two contradictions of working for one of the biggest like scientific technical centers of like the military industrial complex during the Cold War, while also being, you know, staunchly against the Vietnam War and the US war machine and US imperialism abroad, et cetera, et cetera, and be your like this radical anarchist or an anarcho syndicalist, which is what mm-hmm. he's pretty much repped, like, I think, you know, since the 60s at least, or libertarian socialist is another term he kind of uses for it. But as with a lot of uh, people in the West uh, who embrace like anarchism, you start to notice these weird contradictions of like, you know, I mean, Foucault kind of does point out something important which is like you know if you break a law like you know is the is the law uh is it is it wrong because a law is being broken or is it okay to break a law if it's part of like an unjust apparatus and 
Chomsky seems to be saying kind of at the same time, like, well, things that I disagree with, I believe that those laws are illegitimate and like we shouldn't follow them. But also like, whoa, there, revolutionaries, like, hold on, I care about these other laws and they're good. So like you have to uphold those. And if you violate that, then you're an evil tyrant. So it's like, uh, well, I mean, yeah, he was he's like picking and choosing, like, you know, but not admitting the, that he's picking and choosing. And Foucault's, Foucault's kind of like, why don't you just admit it that it's about power? It's about taking power. Yeah. And he's just it, like, oh, well, I don't know about that. Like, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> It wasn't like necessarily the absolute best example because I do feel like even in like Marxism there generally is a concept of justice kind of that that operates, but maybe one that isn't emphasized as strongly as like you know uh, by like the American justice system or the rhetoric that Chomsky was using. But basically, he was saying like uh, Foucault's argument was that you know is this something that has to happen just uh, through like the dialectical importance of class struggle. Uh, you know, that uh, is just something that the proletariat must do by this, you know, trying to uh, say like, well, this is a different kind of, uh, or at least a, a, an attempt at a different sort of epistemological framework. Whereas mm -hmm. like your idea, especially when you're like appealing to the Supreme Court or whatever, or like the values mm -hmm. instituted by it, you know, it's not really like, uh, it shows like the boundedness of, of this kind of like quote unquote radicalism. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And we can see um, like, you know, 50 years later, basically, and like you mentioned, people are uh, getting wiser to it, that every four years, Chomsky, you know, runs around the country saying a bunch of radical stuff. And then every four years is like, well, I just think that you have to do the, the lesser of two evils and vote for the Democrat and take what you can get and, you know, move on to the next one. And he, every single time he tells you to vote for a Democrat and then kind of rationalizes it so it's like he's the classic I, I think you know many adjectives have been used to describe you know he's like the left gatekeeper he's you know he's he's the leader of like the combatable left or the permissible left and he's also there to kind of let you down and you know a term that's been applied to Bernie Sanders is he's like a sheepdog like he he gets you kind of like you know he gets you interested in a lot of these things that are worth being interested in and learning about and he does critique the united states a lot but at the end of the day the journey he kind of leads you on if you follow him and worship him as a saint is always going to come back to like well we just have to vote for the democrat we don't feel great about it but you know it's the best we can do and it's better and he always does get kind of extra hysterical about republicans in particular right at election time every four years and he goes mm -hmm. on democracy now and then goes on like jack you know jacobin and like everywhere else and everyone just like fucking like kisses his feet and it's just like oh my god like you are so brilliant just tell us what to do like it's like every time like the left like fails and like in a very predictable fashion he's there to like kind of make everybody feel okay and like contextualize like why we failed but like we just gotta keep fighting yeah and I think that approach has like quite obviously uh, failed um, tr spectacularly or if even has served like an opposite purpose. Like it has hurt kind of the left. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not like I don't know, it's not like working class, like working people all across the country. were all reading Chomsky. Like I feel like his work is targeted at a certain like educated class of like middle class and like petty bourgeois and et cetera, kind of a professional class yeah uh, type that's also people something that are being acknowledged in the audience q a yeah like in that interview like you know the foucault you know whatever you can say about him he comes off like kind of a, a you know uh an academic like you know like a, a sort of uh 
you know, having a little bit of edge to him. Chomsky mm -hmm. seems like an MIB, like right out of Point Pleasant, like in that, <laughs> in, like, you know, or like someone who's like dispatched. Yeah. He seems like he's like, fr like, I'm from the government, you know, like that's yeah. like what, yeah. you know. Uh, he, he seems, seems like, like one of like Robert McNamara's like, you know, uh, brain trust, like wonder boys that like planned the Vietnam War cybernetically, you know, and, and stuff yeah. like that. Like, uh, um, and like recruited people at 75 IQs yeah. to be infantry think, soldiers. Um, yeah, I think two other things he said in that like are really telling. Like, and one is that when he was asked to like sort of assess like civil disobedience and, uh, he said, well, uh, there's like risks to civil disobedience, you know, uh, he said like uh, civil disobedience is an, in the U.S. is an act undertaken in the face of considerable uncertainties about its effects. For example, it threatens the social order in ways which might, one might argue, bring about fascism. And that mm -hmm. would be a very bad thing for America, for Vietnam, for Holland and for everyone else. You know, if a great Leviathan like the United States would really yeah. become fascist, <laughs> a lot of problems would result. Uh, so that is one danger in undertaking this concrete act. Basically, you're saying like, yeah, civil disobedience, uh, there's a danger in not undertaking civil disobedience because, you know, that would lead to, uh, quote, the society of Indochina uh, will be torn to shreds by American power. Yeah. Um, and, you know, but these are great uncertainties, right, that are that are being faced, because on one hand, like if you're too civilly disobedient, you're going to like provoke the fascists. And that like really mm -hmm. reminds me for one, like since 1971, when these remarks were made, you can see like how that like hesitancy has like borne itself out in terms of preventing fascism. Secondly, mm -hmm. it kind of reminds me of like the same sort of like wheedling that you see like now when uh, Chomsky has to confront like different ideas like on on the left. Uh, it's the. Yeah. Uh, same type of thing of like, well, you need to make a decision. Like, what is, we need to modulate the decision. Like, what decision are we making on January 3rd? You know, or like, or, sorry, on, on November 3rd. On November 3rd. Yeah, yeah. Take 10 he, minutes and vote against something. Yeah, they, you know, He actually has make. the same line as like Bob Avakian and the Revcom people now, which is very ironic because they started out kind of in like, very, like they were ultra kind of like Marxist, Leninist, Maoist tankies, and he was like an anarchist, but they actually have kind of the same line of like, like, I don't know if you, you've ever like seen them in videos or whatever at like mm -hmm. anti-Trump protests, but they just kind of like, they started doing a kind of like entryism into like the anti-Trump movement. And they're just like, like Trump and Pence out now, like refuse yeah. fascism. And right. uh, I remember somewhere near me at like a church nearby, they were having meetings and then like it came out later, they were all like infiltrated by the LAPD. And like they yeah. got them to like, hey guys, you should go like run across the highway and I'll get arrested. And they did and they got arrested. But they've just been like beating that drum of just like refuse fascism, get the Trump-Pence regime out now. And Chomsky in his own way is like kind of doing the exact same thing of like, they're just just so fascist that like we have to vote for like biden and kamala like there's just no yeah, other way well, to even you know, consider and, he has, and like it's a like, sense of, <laughs> he has a sense of like long views well i think we should definitely in time get to like some of his linguistic stuff because it is interesting and like reading about that like that is something that i really had no knowledge of like prior to researching for this episode and i actually like feel like it's uh it's not what you would think like there's i i kind of like respect it in a way like uh because it's so much more wild than what you would imagine but like mm. uh you know, like the uh, yeah, like uh, it's uh, yeah, it's really like he has this sort of like the same thing with his linguistic stuff, like, you know, this level of like uh, extreme abstraction and like the sense that he has like this long view, like, you know, uh, for instance, when he went on bad faith, like for those two people, mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, are annoying to varying degrees, like uh, mm -hmm. and they like, you know, didn't necessarily quote themselves super well in that exchange. 
either. But mm -hmm. like, you know, uh, Chomsky's like whole thing was like, I'm the only one who can see like the long view of these things. Like I'm the only one who can really do the calculus of like what's gonna encourage fascism and like yeah. what is like in the in the long term like something that's gonna save us from the existential threat like of climate change. You know, like oh uh, yeah, he's like, really can, obsessed you know. with. I mean, and okay, whatever, fine. But he is so obsessed that uh, in a recent a couple of years ago, he compared. Trump to Hitler, for, but like, and sure, other people have done that, but specifically <laughs> compared Trump to Hitler for like removing like, uh, like emissions, like, like tighter emissions regulations for like cars or something mm -hmm. like that. And, and the Trump, I mean, it's like, obviously, of course they did that, but it was something along the lines of like, well, there's a lot of things contributing to climate change. And um, this puts, like, more cost on car manufacturers to, you know, I don't know, lower the emissions another 30% or whatever. So let's just, like, get rid of that requirement and just, like, not care about it. Because it won't really change the fate of, like, climate change in the earth anyways. And we can give more money to, like, corporations. You know, just, like, typical American kind of bullshit, right? Like, yeah, mm -hmm. they're not taking climate change seriously. But he compared that specific decision to, like, Hitler uh, genociding, like... 40 million people mm -hmm. and because he said that like basically by saying that you know we are not going to it was very it, it's like very bizarre like that it, it's it's all about um yeah, well, it's, it's yeah like, i mean it's it, like kind of like yeah it's a similar thing to like if you take the long view of like these things it's like the same kind of thing of like yeah i guess like uh, a butterfly like flapping its wings in Africa can cause like a hurricane in South America or something, you know, like, uh, and like over time, like the result of that, like one action. But again, like this is an absurd, like comparison, like, oh, yeah, yeah. Not, Here, like yeah, here's, they're not of the same order of like, you know, uh, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, he, yeah. His exact quote here is, um, uh, they asked, uh, uh, yeah, he, you know, he was saying, like, like, the facts are pretty straight. There's almost universal consensus among serious scientists, he loves saying that, by the way, uh, that we are racing towards the cataclysm. If current tendencies persist, we are moving towards cataclysm. There is one country in the world, the United States, that wants to put its foot on the accelerator. Asked about the specific role played by the president and the Republican Party, he says the global coronavirus pandemic, which has so far killed more than one million people, can be tackled, but not with, quote, malignant cancer in charge of the policies, someone who moves to destroy anything that doesn't improve his electoral chances. Definitely the worst one I can think of in history. Adolf Hitler was pretty hideous, but he wasn't trying to destroy organized human society on Earth. Um... <laughs> <laughs> Adolf Hitler was kind pretty of, yeah. hideous, uh, but he wasn't trying to destroy organized human society on Earth, and therefore Trump yeah, is actually in a way worse the same than Hitler. Fallacy that he called out in Sam Harris. It's like, yeah, like Trump isn't trying to do that either. Like he doesn't like believe in climate change or doesn't like care or like see that as being a consequence of his actions. So like you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. He also said yeah. slightly triggering. Uh, asked you know, uh, challenged with the fact that Nazi Holocaust killed six million Jewish people. Chomsky, whose parents were Jewish, says Hitler also killed thirty million Slavs, but not human civilization. <laughs> um, so you know, yeah. hey, what's the big deal? Thirty million dead Slavs and I mean, six I million think Jews. That, whatever. Like, like it's not as bad as letting for, people like, have pickup trucks. The, 
for one, like the end of human civilization, like I don't know like if that it's gonna be like the real problem, honestly. And I think that like saying that stuff, even if like through some like, you know, uh, contingency or some uh, exigency, like that were the outcome where like somehow climate change caused human extinction, which I don't really think is what serious scientists think is what's going to actually <laughs> yeah. happen. They yeah. believe that like it's going to like cause like uh, all of the things that like uh, ruin people's lives all over the world, like poverty and like mm -hmm. uh, famine and pestilence yeah. to get like a million times worse. And like, yeah. you know, that there will be like climate refugees everywhere and like, you know, it will destabilize. Uh, like societies globally and actually yeah. like the people who benefit from it the most will be like the global north as usual yeah uh, whereas the global south will, will suffer like so mm -hmm. that's really good i almost think that like he's talking in these terms of, like human extinction like you know almost dilutes the issue like in a way or like uh yeah like it just doesn't have that sort of immediate term sensibility or and it might even like go against as far as i know i could be wrong but as far as i know I think that that is kind of in contradiction to what, like, you know, the quote-unquote serious scientists, like, are yeah. saying. Um, yeah, no, I think it like, is. I, yeah, I think it is. Um, but it's something that, I, and he does the thing that a lot of people that are, like, climate change is like, one issue do. Like, is, it's so hard for people to get, uh, like, around the idea of, like, to contemplate human extinction. Like, yeah. you know, he must at least acknowledge that it's difficult for people to, like, wrap their minds around that possibility like enough to like take political action on that basis like sure you know that's like the sort of like steiner like you know uh sorry sterner thing that's like so mm -hmm. uh you know aloof and like uh in this like world of ideas that uh you know you can see how people can't like relate to it like even though like it is an urgent thing like the way that you're framing it isn't even the most urgent like you know isn't even the best way to like have people understand the urgency and also like you know, you can't really blame people for caring about other things when, like, if human civilization ends, then, like, you know, all right, well, like, human civilization ended, like, you know, so it's just like, all right, yeah, well. I, I um, think he, he does what a lot of people do, which is basically, I think they've almost, like, they've convinced themselves, I think, previously subconsciously, but I think at this point it is more conscious that, like, so what if we have to exaggerate? We need to get people freaked the fuck out because this is so important. You know what I mean? It's that kind of thing where mm -hmm. even if I'm exaggerating, I'd rather exaggerate and we don't all die than under... And, you know, be more it's kind of ironic because there's the same people that are all about like fact checking and like giving Pinocchios and all that shit that like, yeah, but like if it's for an important cause, you obviously have to exaggerate because people are dumb and you need to like you can't trust them to come to their own conclusion about, you know, how important this is. So you need to like blow it up and freak everybody out. Um, mm -hmm. And I think like that is something that is definitely from like Greta Thunberg to like every other thing and like the climate movement has all been about like what if we crank up the alarmism and do that but I think it kind of has an opposite effect or it, it just doesn't doesn't work well, yeah, necessarily the way if people see feel that you're being disingenuous then yeah then like, they're gonna start doubting know. the serious scientists and you know the whole the whole yeah. enterprise because they feel like somebody's up to something and i think somebody is up to something i'm not saying climate change is like fake but like i think the way in which we are going we're being set up now even just psychologically prepped to respond to the challenge I think is something that there is something going on. There are powerful players that want to control that process. And Chomsky seems to be of the opinion that I know he's not alone on this, that kind of like we have to stop climate change before like we uh, 
end capitalism or like switch away from like our economic system that we have because it's just such a threat that it's, we're all going to be dead anyways. So like we have to focus on even if, you know, I, I think these people do have to think what they're trying to like proselytize and martial political action that saying things like we just need to get rid of all fossil fuels in the next 10 years that sounds like economic suicide to a lot of people and i feel like if you did that in like a crash program that wasn't like properly thought out in a way that wasn't it would destroy people's it would just it would destroy industries and stuff like you really can't just like be like we're gonna have like wind and solar in like five years and like we just and i feel like increasingly because you can't make a really good argument of I think if you made a like plan, you know, maybe we need like a, a five year plan perhaps or a, a 10 year mm. plan or something like that, that is like, okay, we're going to transition. But for it to be like all the activists seem to be like, no, we need to transition yesterday. So just like shut it all down. Like just fire all the coal miners, like close down all the refineries. Just stop killing PayPal. You know, it's like that kind of like hysterical like attitude. And all that's going to do, I feel like is uh, cause a lot of like economic economic uh, chaos and havoc it's gonna like wreak a lot of havoc on the economy and i don't know maybe this is just like thinking like in the last year of like seeing how like lockdowns for like a, a sort of pandemic reason could have a devastating effect that is not like expressly obviously intended but it's like when something when now we've normalized that you can do something like that for the greater good like just shut down sectors of the economy so that's kind of coming on the horizon is something that maybe i'm just a little bit like i'm going to keep an eye on because we don't i don't think we would want kind of like you know uh kind of bureaucratic sectors of government you think that'd be something that chomsky himself wouldn't want but of course this is an, uh, an area where his anarchism just dissolves away into like just wanting to just being like a, a, yeah. a, a, li a liberal basically this and like, like a, a technocratic liberal and is like well yeah. it's too important you know and so yeah. what like how much like uh human destruction is going to be caused by reacting to this thing you have to ba it's just like with lockdowns like well, you have to balance thing. like, these things is, like ultimate well now joe biden is president so like is he gonna like and i feel like everybody kind of went back to brunch uh as yep. perhaps predicted <laughs> so like yep. all, is that is he gonna do anything about this like i don't know like uh but i i wanted also to bring up uh this like very telling probably like uh you know uh something that certainly among chomsky's critics has like been circulated a lot from uh, that debate in 1971 with Foucault, uh, where, uh, you know, he was asked about MIT. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, he said, there are people who argue, and I have never understood the logic of this, that a radical ought to dissociate himself from oppressive institutions. Um, you know, uh, he says, the logic of that argument is that Karl Marx shouldn't have studied the British Museum, which, if anything, was a symbol of the most vicious imperialism in the world. Uh, you know, uh, the place where all the treasures of the empire had gathered from the rape of comics brought together. But I think Karl Marx was quite right in sitting at the British Museum. He was right in using the resources and, in fact, the liberal values of the civilization he was trying to overcome against it. And I think the same applies in this case. Uh, you know, uh. and he, he also said, like, you know, it is true that MIT is a major institution of war research. But it's also true that it embodies very important libertarian values, which are, I think, quite deeply embedded in American society, fortunately for the world. 
they're not deeply <laughs> embedded enough to save the Vietnamese, but they are deeply embedded enough to prevent far worse disasters. Apparently not. Uh, That's but anyway, disgusting. Like, that is a disgusting. Out, you know, that is a disgusting. Uh, I'm I'm kind of pissed off by that 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 yeah. little throwaway line of like it's not it's not embedded enough. Like if only we had more libertarian American values, like what the Vietnamese would have been saved from our bombs. Like uh, yeah, so dude, it's like still, also know, they beat they beat us like. He never acknowledges, I feel like, the agency of, like, the Vietnamese people in, like, beating the Technotronic Empire and, like, kicking them out. It's always, like, I'm against the war because these poor little rice farmers are getting bombed by, like, our napalm death machines. And, like, we we must save them yeah, to live up like to our own values. of, like, the war machine. Like, and, you is. know, like, that's, that's my role. Uh, the loyal opposition. Like, uh, yeah, well, yeah, it's like he has this attachment to like these. That's a thing like, you know, uh, for one, again, this is something that could be said of like a lot of people. It definitely could be said of like anyone who's like uh, involved in academia, that academia is deeply embedded. Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I think Foucault like has an awareness of that. But again, like, did he dissociate himself from like the institutions? Not really. Like, you know, mm-hmm. no one really. No, does. he moved like, to America. He these- came to the UC. Yeah. yeah. We all have these complicities, like, in, in many ways. But I think that the idea that, like, you know, I think that his attachment to these things kind of really prevents, like, the kind of radicalism that he often gestures towards. Like, uh, it reminds me of, like, uh, that quote from the play, like, Marat Saad, which is kind of, uh, I don't know if you uh, ever, uh, is by, uh, you know, uh, Peter Weiss, uh, the mm-hmm. play. Um, it's basically about, like, Not a play. With, it's a play within a play put on in a mental institution, uh, like, you know, uh, by the Marquis de Sade, um, wow. about uh, Jean-Paul Marat, uh, who, you know, was a leader in the French Revolution. Um, but there's this one quote in the play where, you know, he talks about how, like, everyone wants to keep something from the old regime, you know? Everyone, like, you know, well, like a painting or a horse, you know? And then next mm-hmm. thing you know, like, you have, like, this, uh, you know, like, the sanctity of private property being written into the Declaration of the Rights of Man, you know? No. Uh, and then next thing you know, like, everyone, uh, you know, is pit against each like, other and, like... Doing, like, BDSM ritual orgies. You know, exactly. And... So, like, <laughs> uh, he wants to keep, like, his, you know, uh, chair in the linguistics department at MIT or whatever, <laughs> like, uh, and that's, yeah. you know, that's a common thing. I think that you could say that of many people, but it's definitely, like, something that you can you can observe in in, in Chomsky in, in a very uh in a very tangible way uh and yes yeah yes. i think that's part and of the reason why people are so frustrated by him a lot of the time yeah and yeah. as we'll see like it, it seems like the linguistic his linguistics department at mit uh really didn't uh ever consider shuttering shutting down his apartment for or his department for his ultra radical anti-war views because as it turns out he was doing what at the time they considered some pretty valuable research that had uh some pretty extensive and revolutionary military applications right yes well i think think uh, we talked about that in our very first episode in theory apparently it kind of like didn't work out like how well it worked out you know it's one of those things like you know uh but definitely the idea of what Chomsky promised. I mean, we should describe like what exactly his linguistic theories are in greater detail, but like, uh, you know, what his, his theories basically created a whole revolution in the field of linguistics, uh, moving it away from something that was kind of grounded on the social and embedded in the idea of society and communication, you know, and as language is, um, Mm -hmm. and, uh, brought it into something that, you know, he, uh, 
formulated as being like an abstract natural science in a, in a similar way to physics, you know? And that was like a, a huge rebuff to the idea of behaviorism, you know? Uh, mm. it basically, his ideas were the opposite of behaviorism, that people are like, you know, kind of, um, their, their, like, their internal states don't like have any significance, you know, that model, if, as, as applied to linguistics. Yeah, exactly. And stuff, you know, like, really, that's more of a blank slate yeah. thing. But Chomsky's idea is basically that, like, everyone has the code of mm -hmm. like some primordial language inside yes. of themselves from like yeah. their you know when they're born and mm -hmm. that like is what actually enables them to learn uh you know a given language and all languages are united by this like you know core universal grammar yeah the universal grammar which yeah. is like a in wild a, in theory. A, in innate universal yeah. grammar yeah i like uh i kind of like the idea of, of universal grammar because like you know uh I feel like it's so wacky and it's not what you would think like it would be Chomsky's linguistic theory like based on his like uh, you know being an anarchist and everything because mm. you know and of course like kind of an atheist you know like uh because it's yeah. like it reminds me of something that like an 11th century like Arab would come up with or like uh <laughs> you know an early modern like Harufi you know like well, uh, even talking about like, the letters that are the, in the code of the universe like you know yeah, it reminds I me almost, of like the, the adamic language like it's like a john d thing you know like a nokian mm, or something yeah like, yeah uh, no yeah. for sure for sure and yeah, it, i um, could even almost see in, in a certain kind of prism like somebody like foucault like getting behind this idea in the sen in the context of there are like invisible structures that kind of like dumb that kind of you know that basically uh inform and influence our behavior that we're not even conscious of and like there's like there's this like linguistic superstructure that everyone's born with that controls us like without our kind of knowledge well, etc etc foucault would be the opposite which would be that like social structures i guess like, you're right no you know, he's completely people. about yeah. like the uh, coming Whereas like influence yeah. from what from the outside yeah Chomsky as opposed to your about like the, the yeah the libertarian spirit of like this yeah. you know linguistic code that's like within you know like each individual you know and yeah. obviously yeah that has practical applications and it's also like you know uh just in general like the same way that you'd want to uh, you know, for instance, the military or uh, the CIA or whatever would want to support like modern art to show mm -hmm. like the cultural sophistication of the United States, showing like, you know, having Chomsky, someone who's like revolutionizing the field of linguistics, creating this huge, you know, uh, sea change that's obviously like appealing in and of itself. Uh, mm -hmm. And yeah, like it's absolutely true that his earliest work was funded like directly by the air force you know yeah uh, yeah like, exactly um, and and the the i don't know if you call it the meter corporation right the m-i-t-r-e um yeah. corporation which was like kind of a, a joint venture of like m-i-t uh and the pentagon um kind of a cutting-edge laboratory um and yeah i mean basically at the time there was a specific way in which the military looked at his research and it they did not look at it as purely academic and this is mostly in the uh the early 60s um when this was happening um and there's a lot of looking into the idea of like an essential kind of universal language but then also immediately they were thinking about the implications in computing technology that yeah. this would uh basically and you know if you could establish a kind of universal thing uh i'm looking i'm looking at this well, article Chomsky kind of uh, is the creator uh, or like not well, maybe a creator 
uh, like in Christopher Knight's or Chris Knight's uh, yeah. book, Decoding Chomsky, which is probably like the most thorough, uh, you know, publication that's a critique of Chomsky weaving mm -hmm. together, kind of really taking on the issue of like the apparent split between his academic career and his professed like radical ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he points out that like the whole idea, like the Josh Harris stuff of like, we're just a wet CPU, like yeah. Chomsky at least played a huge role in perpetuating that concept. Uh, mm. You know, he writes that, um, you know, Chomsky did not invent computers, design software, or write science fiction. More than anyone else, however, it was Chomsky who convinced the computational science community that their ideas about computers were really directly to human beings. It was mm. Chomsky, after all, who claimed that the defining feature of humanity, our capacity for language, was itself a digital machine. There was mm. not really much evidence for this. Chomsky says it is so obvious you don't need evidence, but that hardly mattered. Uh, the astounding and exciting claim, never before seriously imagined, just had to be true, or at least needed to be asserted and generally believed, for the simple reason that, without it, none of the other claims would carry weight. Without Chomsky's digital device, the one alleged to be inside each of us, those computer nerds preoccupied with their laboratory devices would have been just that, technicians designing inanimate machines. They welcomed Chomsky's revelation because they needed it to elevate their work to a level where it mattered, that of people. This idea subsequently licensed a cascade of logical implications, not all of which Chomsky himself would endorse. Um, mm. yeah, so he, that, it sounds like basically he is like one of the founding fathers of like human computer cathexis. Yeah, the idea that a human brain is a wet CPU, basically. Yeah, and can um, interface uh, and perhaps ought to interface with a computer. Uh, yeah, could. For sure. And and that's uh, following up on that. I just wanted to read a little bit from uh, from uh, was it Chris Knight's blog on Noam Chomsky, and mm -hmm. he wrote this in 2017, like a year after Decoding Chomsky came out. And I guess he did a little bit more research on that didn't make it into the book, but then he you know went back and uh, this was titled uh, the Meter Corporation's project to use Chomsky's linguistics for their weapon systems. The first 2016 edition of Decoding Chomsky did not explore the fine details of military research at MIT. MIT is so well known as a Pentagon-funded university that specifying the details seemed unnecessary. The only quote I cited which connected Pentagon funding to the new linguistics was this one. Defense of the continental United States against air and missile attack is possible in part because of the use of such computer systems, and of course, such systems support our forces in Vietnam. The data in such systems is processed in response to questions and requests by commanders. Since the computer cannot understand English, the commander's queries must be translated into a language that the computer can deal with. Command and control systems would be easier to use, and it would be easier to train people to use them if this translation were not necessary. We sponsored linguistic research in order to learn how to build command and control systems that could not understand English queries directly. This statement from 1971 seems sufficient because the whole point of my book was not to suggest that Chomsky worked directly on military research, but rather that he had to move mountains to avoid doing so. The mere threat of his work being used for military research was enough, I argued, to prompt him to resist, steadfastly refusing to help with engineering or other practical applications. Chomsky's linguistics remained at all times so abstract and otherworldly that it could not be used for any practical purposes at all, let alone for direct military ones. 
However, since finishing my book, I had become aware that the situation was more nuanced. In the early 1960s, Chomsky acted as a consultant on an ambitious Air Force-funded project whose military purposes were plain enough. The evidence is contained in, in a February 1964 article from MIT's official journal, The Technology Review. In it, Air Force Lieutenant Samuel J. Kaiser explains his thinking. Once a computer has been appropriately programmed in the light of Chomsky's insights, writes Kaiser, it will be, quote, endowed with the ability to recognize instructions imparted to it in perfectly ordinary English, thereby eliminating a necessity for highly specialized languages that intervene between a man and a computer. He continues, in fact, a great deal of work in doing just this has already been undertaken. Donald E. Walker of the Meter Corporation, uh, Associate Professor G. Hubert Matthews of MIT, and J. Bruce Fraser have placed a significant portion of the grammar of English on a computer. A follow-up article was uh, by Kaiser was published in the Meter Corporation in 65. Here, Kaiser discusses the limitations of the various artificial control languages then being used in the military's command and control systems. He refers both to the SAGE air defense system and to the various computer control languages of the U.S. Air Force, the Navy, and NORAD. Kaiser goes on to suggest an alternative in the form of an English control language developed on the basis of Chomsky's linguistic insights. During the course of his technical discussion, Kaiser cites Chomsky's classic example sentence, colorless green ideas sleep furiously. He then incorporates words such as aircraft, fighter, bomber, and missile, combining them in such sentences as the bomber the fighter attacked landed safely. The bomber the fighter the radar spotted attacked landed safely. Now, for the Meter Corporation, it helps to know something about the Meter Corporation, for which Donald Walker and Bruce Fraser were working at the time. Meter was jointly set up in 1958 by MIT and the U.S. Air Force in order to develop air defense and command and control technology for both nuclear and conventional warfare. Uh, and he shows a diagram of the uh, the SAGE system that Thomas Pynchon has uh, riffed on a lot. Um, I guess a, an, a quote from Meter Corporation's official history states, most of Meter's commitment to the U.S. involvement in Vietnam occurred during the latter part of the 1960s. During fiscal year 1967, Meter was devoting almost one quarter of its total resources to the command, control, and communication systems necessary to the conduct of that conflict. Um, and then he posts a, a Donald Walker paper um, uh, called Transformational Grammars, which on the first page acknowledges the linguistic concepts on which this work is based are due to Noam Chomsky. Uh, and it talks about yeah, a solution to the analysis problem for a class of grammars appropriate to the description of natural languages is essential to any system which involves the automatic processing of natural language inputs for purposes of man-machine communication, translation, information retrieval, or data processing. Um, and it was exploring using English as a computer command language. Uh, and I guess Lieutenant Bruce Frazier, uh, I guess, wrote in 1967 for the Air Force that the linguistic framework within which almost all of the current work in language processing is carried out involves the theory of language developed by Chomsky and others that was introduced in syntactic structures and elaborated on in aspects of the theory of syntax. Uh, the the MITRE uh, English preprocessor system was intended to translate English sentences into instructions in a formal command and control language, but almost all of the research has gone into the development of transformational grammar and a procedure for performing the syntactic analysis. Yeah, somebody else kind of boasts in 68. The most, this is in 68, so this is like while I guess he was already like anti-Vietnam War. The most ambitious effort to construct an operating grammar is being made by a group at MITRE 
concerned with English-like communication and command and control computer systems, it is no accident that Noam Chomsky, the major theorist in all of American linguistics, is located at MIT. So, um, you know, I guess uh, there's other, like, receipts that this guy basically brings up, and I guess... uh, yeah, it's it says here that like so they, he talked to some of Chomsky's former students. He said one of the former students, Barbara Party, has confirmed to me that Chomsky visited MITRE in his consultancy role in 1965. She has also explained that the head of the whole project, Donald Walker, convinced the military to hire her and other students on the basis that in the event of a nuclear war, the generals would be underground with some computers trying to manage things, and it would be probably easier to teach computers to understand English than to teach the generals to program. It is difficult to know precisely how Chomsky felt about working as a MITRE consultant during these years because, to my knowledge, he has never discussed this in public. But we do know how he reacted when his wife, Carol, began working on an Air Force project at MIT in 1959. The project was intended to enable, quote, the business executive, the military commander, and the scientist to communicate with computers in natural language. According to the project's head, Bert Green, Chomsky was, quote, very nervous about all this and required reassurance because he feared that his wife might end up working on, quote, voice-activated command and control systems. So when, a few years later, Chomsky himself ended up working on a real Air Force command and control project, we can only imagine how, quote, nervous he must have felt. We can be pretty sure that he would have felt no less uncomfortable about the whole project than his student at the time, Barbara Partee. Discussing her work at Meter, she recalls, For a while, the Air Force was convinced that supporting pure research and generative grammar was a national priority, and we all tried to convince ourselves that taking Air Force money for such purposes was consistent with our consciences, possibly even a benign subversion of the military-industrial complex. Maybe Chomsky, too, managed to persuade himself that working on this project was somehow consistent with his anti-militarist conscience, but he would surely have felt uncomfortable had his linguistic research in real life helped the military accomplish what they wanted, which was an operational language for command and control. Fortunately for the consciences of both Party and Chomsky, their research failed to produce anything that actually worked. Um, and I guess uh, I guess he, uh, I guess after 1965, he quoted that he, after that whole period, he couldn't look himself in the mirror anymore and threw himself into political activism to try to stop the war in Vietnam. And this is interesting. We can get to if we dive into his works later. It says, from then on, as Chomsky's political positions became more publicly known, whenever he modified his linguistic theories, he did so only in one direction, never toward greater realism, always towards what Adele Goldberg has rightly described as, quote, ever-increasing layers of abstractness. Instead of studying languages, as Foucault exploited, uh, Chomsky focused exclusively on something of his own making, universal grammar. Since this could not be precisely specified, Chomsky's approach had one great advantage. It soon became clear that nothing worked or possibly could work. Once this realization sank in, Chomsky the activist was safe. Never again would the U.S. military imagine they could use his work to develop systems of computerized command and control. Unfortunately, this same abstractness meant that his models had little apparent relevance to what the rest of us term language, offering few insights into how language might have evolved in the past or how it is continuously being created and recreated by speakers today. Uh, so, yeah, that's a lot there, but a lot of interesting stuff. His relationship, I guess, with the very heart of the military industrial complex and his sort of inability to talk about it. But clearly, it seems like perhaps it's something. I don't know. What do you think about that? Uh, yeah, um, he definitely like, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah, like uh, the. Uh, 
like the 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 use of uh, or the the uh, the value that was seen in his work, uh, you know, uh, definitely is something that he like has not addressed like at all. And actually, like mm-hmm. uh, something that Chris Knight like brought out in his blog as well, like a little bit later, uh, was that like Chomsky. I didn't actually read like Chomsky's critique, but. You know, Chomsky is someone who, like, you know, really goes in on people, like, if they challenge him, you know, like, mm-hmm. he doesn't really hold hard. back, you know, yeah. like, uh, and I guess, like, he was, you know, decoding Chomsky the book, like, it is critical of uh, Chomsky, but it still appreciates, like, his intelligence, you know, it gives mm-hmm. him a pass for, like, you know, it, like, it respects his uh, courage in protesting the Vietnam War, things like that, you know, like, it's not... Yeah, it's a critique uh, of, like, mm-hmm. a huge, like, public intellectual. So, like, that's yeah. something that you'd think would be within the bounds of, like, the libertarian spirit, you know, or whatever. Right? But, exactly. Uh, For somebody who like, hates tyranny so and, and, and signed yeah. that public letter against, like, political correctness and cancel culture, oh, he I seems uh, very that. touchy. Uh, yeah, right? Yeah. He's very mm-hmm. touchy about uh, a, a whole range of questions that people, uh, even though he's notorious for sitting around answering people's emails randomly, which just makes him such a, again, such a saint. Like, he's so, yeah. he's, like, uh, he's superhuman, you know, and all that stuff. So, it is weird that when when you hit one of these like you know third rails he goes off right yeah um and he definitely did like he basically denied uh everything uh that was uh you know said about him like uh or you know implied like in the book like uh in terms of his intimate involvement with uh you know the the u.s military through mit Mm -hmm. uh he just would not uh you know, it, like he, just, he refuses to acknowledge it, even though, you know, as uh, like people have pointed out, like he did in that Q&A after the debate, uh, you know, mm-hmm. like he said, it is a big institution of war research. Um, yeah. And basically he, uh, you know, objected to like a bunch of things. And he had uh, Chris, and I guess, had to go through the different uh, figures that were sort of named in the book and, and their relationship to Chomsky. Um, I'm looking at that right now in the in this blog yeah. post, but like Jerome Wiesner and mm-hmm. the people that like basically built like the were hugely influential in U.S. defense policy and and uh, promoting like the missile gap thing. Which uh, another, if there's one period of time, and it's interesting that it coincides with the period where he was intimately, like literally working um, on Air Force projects, is he has this thing against Jack Kennedy. And yeah, we'll, get, we'll circle Kennedy. back to that later because of how he feel his comments, uh, kind of in my view, notorious comments about the JFK assassination. But he he has this like uh, yeah. he, it, it's almost one area where Chomsky and I think there maybe are a couple of similarities between these two figures. It's where Chomsky goes a little bit Larouche because like <laughs> he is insistent that things that we think, especially on the left about Jack Kennedy were all wrong and Kennedy was like a sick Malthusian like a warmonger anti-communist like imperialist and uh that's why it doesn't matter who killed him because he was yeah I mean I don't like I think that there is like some hagiography of Kennedy that like is warranted I think that's normal like you know but he takes it far uh well yeah he obviously has like a personal like I think he takes the sort of hagiographical stuff like uh, an affront to it but yeah like it is crazy like the extent to which he went you know uh, like for instance, like I am in academia, you know, mm-hmm. like if someone pointed out to me like, hey, like you're involved with this institution, like, you know, and all these people like, you know, who you work with or whatever, like, uh, 
you know, uh, if I was like in the public eye, like, uh, you know, all the people who you work with have like these uh, complicities with like whatever, like the CIA or like, you yeah. know, the military industrial complex, <laughs> yeah. you know, I would be like, you know, maybe trying to distance myself, like trying mm -hmm. to like keep my job, like while trying, but like, I assume that most of these people are dead, you mm -hmm. know, like, and Chomsky's going to be dead soon too. So, no, you know, yeah, uh, he's over like, 90. So, Why, what is he hiding so what at this is he, point? So he literally like it's you know, this is a really crazy thing. The guy about the missile gap, he basically was the person who like was the main advocate of the idea of the missile gap. Like, yes. or, you know, the lie of the missile gap that the uh -huh. U.S. like had fewer missiles than the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, and Chomsky literally said that uh, Weissner, this guy, Jerome Weissner, uh, urged disarmament while informing uh -huh. Kennedy administration that the missile gap between the Soviet Union and the U.S. was a miss, was a miss. Yeah. Although he did eventually have to acknowledge that, you know, this missile gap thing was wrong, much like, you know, the, uh, like, psychic research gap that uh, had to be acknowledged as well was in reverse. Um, yeah. You know, he did eventually acknowledge that, but he also, like, played a huge role in originating like the whole idea exactly so, like taking and, it back later even though, like to yeah. betray him as like someone who fought against it that's like yeah. really nuts you know uh, yeah and for him yeah. to write back to uh chris knight that uh that wiesner's role was so slight that he is not even mentioned in authoritative there he goes again he's always like saying a uh, trusted scientist say authoritative insider accounts blah 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 like why does he trust all these fuck uh, anyways he's not even mentioned in authoritative insider accounts in the missile gap but then uh but then knight talked to one of chomsky's mit colleagues uh gerald zacharias uh who said he could hardly have been clear when he described Wiesner as soaked in military work, including, quote, submarine warfare, air defense, atom bombs, guerrilla warfare, civil defense, and psychological warfare. Um, so that's the guy that, like, who obviously, according to most historical accounts, was, like, a warmonger, a missile gap truther, and all these other things that Chomsky is, like, going out his way and being like, no, that guy actually was, like, the opposite of all those things, and Kennedy was dick, or something like that. You know what I mean? It's just mm -hmm. weird. It's very, very weird. And this guy's been dead forever, so, like, why? I, I think he's protecting something. It seems like he's like yeah. there's, there's the Gordon something... McDonald stuff is really like all these people like it's really crazy like the distortions that Chomsky made in his defense of them like the Gordon McDonald stuff. I think you'll you'll appreciate this one. I'll just read this uh, from okay. Christopher Knight's blog. Gordon McDonald is another leading scientist who played an important role in the creation of the McNamara barrier. He worked for MIT in the 1950s and for MITRE in the 1960s. In Chomsky's view, this, quote, Vietnam War protester deserves our gratitude for having been one of the first scientists to warn humanity about the dangers of global warming, setting alarm bells ringing as early as the 1970s. The but wait, on. but just, just wait, just wait. It is important to find Chomsky describing McDonald as a Viet... Oh, sorry, it is disappointing to find Chomsky describing McDonald as a Viet War, not a war protester since the claim is so patently wrong. In fact, Chomsky seems to have misread his own source, a 2018 New York Times article. The piece does mention a protest against the Vietnam War, but Chomsky gets things upside down. The article clearly states that a group of anti-Vietnam War protesters set McDonald's garage on fire <laughs> in anger at the prominent scientist's involvement with the infamous McNamara barrier across Vietnam. Wow. But then, as for global warming, Chomsky again gets things upside down. He fails to mention that McDonald made his initial findings about global warming while investigating ways to manipulate the weather for U.S. military <gasps> advantage of Vietnam and elsewhere. <laughs> Among other ingenious projects, McDonald investigated ways to destroy the ozone layer in order to expose enemy territory to radiation levels that would be, quote, fatal to all life. 
Well, actually, he was trying uh, to advocate like, disarmament for... Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry that we couldn't save the Vietnamese people from us. Uh, you know, like... Yeah. yeah like, I'm sorry that you couldn't save the Vietnamese people from, like, your friends and mentors, Noam Chomsky. Jesus, wow, that is that is some... That, yeah. That's right at the heart of it. And I, I think he's talking about the infamous McNamara barrier... I believe yeah. I read about that some it's years back. An electronic back. defense barrier. Uh, yeah, you know, this was one like of the first. Uh, uh, this was one of the first kind of like operationally uh, operational like uh, parts of like the sort of the internet technology. I read about it. I think it was Alexander Cockburn's book Kill Chain, which is a history of remote warfare and drone warfare. It's actually really good. It's a, it's a really good history, and it gets into the Phoenix program. I think there was a scientific. Um, kind of a group called like the Jason Society that was involved in the Manhattan Project and then a lot of like I think they were very into like cybernetics in the 50s and you know very cutting edge and and uh and then like MIT and the Pentagon basically built this sensor system out in the jungles of Vietnam I think they were trying to do it around the Ho Chi Minh Trail and basically it would trip a sensor and it served as basically a radar early warning system for, you know, Vietnamese troop movements. So then the idea was like they would trip this signal and then they would have a location and go out there and bomb them or attack them or something. Apparently it didn't work very well. The Vietnamese caught on pretty quickly. Like the technology was kind of uh, finicky. And I, I think even the Vietnamese figured out pretty quickly how to like spoof the system and like trick it into like going off. So mm-hmm. I guess the earliest iterations, but you know, this is like a very big experiment. And it was another uh, one of many efforts in the Vietnam War to take this kind of like technocratic or like technotronic approach to warfare of like, oh, if we use this new cutting edge technology, these peasant rice farmers won't be able to beat us, obviously. And even if they eh, even if we don't win, we're getting to everyone's making a lot of money. We're getting to experiment with like cutting edge new technologies, et cetera. You know what I mean? Like there's a lot of like really twisted reasons why they were using Vietnam as a technological warfare laboratory. And Chomsky, I guess, was uh, extremely in extremely close proximity to all of the people that were uh, doing it all the way up to, like, ripping out parts of the ozone layer to blast, like, Hanoi with radiation. Yeah. I mean, how, I don't know. How, it, it's just, yeah. Well, oh, my God. Like, how do you... Yeah. How do you just be an anarchist and, like, flatten the concept of tyranny to be, like, anybody that has a government that has, like, a police force? <laughs> you know, um, or something, like, which he kind of does, yeah. like, selectively, but th- that's what he kind of... That's, like, his... He has such a high standard for anybody else that is trying to, like, set up, a, you know, a revolutionary society or, you know, uh, set themselves up in opposition. I mean, didn't he say that, like, the, like, uh, Khmer Rouge was, like, you know, made up or something? Like, he had some, like big misfires they were you know in the past up. like yeah like That's a uh, weird take. on june 6 1977 noam chomsky and edward s herman published an article in the nation which contrasted the views expressed in books by baron and paul pochard porter and hildebrand and articles and accounts by butterfield bragg cahin kazak schamberg tolgraven and others their conclusion was we do not depend to know where the truth lies amidst these sharply conflicting assessments rather we want to emphasize some crucial points what filters through the american public is a seriously distorted version of the evidence available emphasizing alleged Khmer Rouge atrocities and downplaying or ignoring the crucial U.S. role direct and indirect in the torment Cambodia has suffered. 
Um, oh, wow. So okay, so that's, like, that's a doozy. the Cambodian genocide. Um, which, which I, yeah. ironically, well, like, I, there, there's multiple ironies there, but, like, ironically was, like, one of the times when there really was, like, a mass yeah. kind of slaughter, like, genocide, like, that, that was a, a real thing that happened. Uh, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge, like, like senselessly murdered, like, a hell of a lot of people. Also, the, the second layer of the onion there is that they were actually backed by the U.S., and it was actually communist. Vietnam that invaded Cambodia and overthrew Pol Pot and actually stopped it. And I believe they were not supported by the Soviet Union, the Khmer Rouge. They were opposed to them. Uh, but I think China supported the Khmer Rouge. So that was like a, a maybe one of the earliest uh, China-U.S. collabs was uh, I, Henry Kissinger in particular backed the Khmer Rouge taking power. And then uh, Vietnam had to go in and stop the genocide from happening. And uh, mm. so that's like a weird take uh, for Chomsky to kind of have uh, that, like, maybe it wasn't like critical. So, like of all the things to critically support Chomsky, like fi- it's like, oh, finally, a communist government that I can critically support the Khmer Rouge. <laughs> it's like, what? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? It's um, like uh, the, uh, the exact opposite. It also is very ironic in light of a lot of the things he was saying in this past decade about things that were going on in the Middle East and particularly in Syria where mm-hmm. he was not yeah, so well, charitable. He had, a, he had uh, a switch where, yeah, well, he first was kind of anti-intervention or whatever, but then it was a very it was a very dim, like, lib sort of thing because at first he was kind of, like, you know, anti-intervention, but then, like, when Trump abandoned the Kurds, that was a bridge too far. Like, the Kurds needed to be protected because oh, they yeah, yeah. Fell, he loves the based, based Rojava yeah. Kurds. Yeah, yeah, uh, he right, does yeah. love them. But I'm saying, if you believe in freedom of speech, you believe in freedom of speech for Busey on life. I mean, Goebbels was in favor of freedom of speech for Busey life, right? So is Stalin. If you're in favor of freedom of speech, that means you're in favor of freedom of speech precisely for views you despise. One last thing that I wanted to mention in terms of, like, Chomsky's uh, problematic uh, friendships was that he was friends with the chemical engineer at MIT, uh, John Deutsch. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, who would eventually become a director of the CIA? Um, and I think he was Secretary of Defense uh, at one point. Uh, am I wrong? Uh, um, I'm not sure, but he will. Oh, he we was have Deputy brought Secretary of Defense. Yeah, uh, we have we have brought him up yeah. as the CIA director who was famously publicly humiliated by Michael Rupert at the town hall yeah. in South Central Los Angeles in the '90s, where. He yelled about how the CIA had been trafficking drugs for years and everyone applauded and John Deutsch had to do his like 
pursed, like, uh, regretted, bureaucratic regret face, uh, and, you know, deny it, whatever. Uh, Served on the boards of Citigroup, Cummins, Raytheon, and is a member of the Trilateral Commission. Yes. Uh, Good friend of Noam Chomsky. (laughs) Yeah, apparently one of the few members of the faculty, uh, Chomsky that is, who supported John Deutsch's candidacy for president of MIT. Wow. Yes, uh, this is what Chris Knight says about that. Mm-hmm. To appreciate the glaring contradiction involved here, it is worth remembering that, according to Chomsky, the CIA does what it wants, carrying out assassinations, systematic torture, bombings, invasions, mass murder civilians, and multiple other crimes. In Indonesia in 1965, the CIA organized a military coup to prevent the Communist Party, described by Chomsky as the, quote, party of the poor, from winning a key general election. The ensuing repression resulted in a staggering mass slaughter of several million peasants. Chomsky recalls the CIA pointed out in its report, which has since come out, the slaughter that took place ranks up with the Nazis and Stalin. They were very <laughs> proud of it. I knew you were going to get upset. Yeah, uh, of course, <laughs> and said it was one of the most important events of the century. Uh, the massacre Chomsky describes is not in dispute, and his outrage is clearly genuine. So Chomsky was not just flitting between different worlds. As he settled into his MIT job, he found himself nudging between colliding tectonic plates. Deutsch's original claim to fame between two uh, had been sorry to uh, 1978 research papers on thermobaric weapons, vacuum bombs, or fuel air explosives, as they were called. Even before Deutsch's appointment to run the CIA, Chomsky could hardly have introduced his peculiar friend of his to a meeting of anti-war activists. Conversely, while chatting with Deutsch, he surely would not have welcomed the presence of any activists who would join the conversation. As he flitted between one side of his life and the other, Chomsky, in fact, needed and did his best to construct a veritable firewall to keep these two constituencies of his apart. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I guess this was, was one of the people who uh, Chomsky, like, you know, really wanted to defend from uh, the statement that I just read from from that book that, uh, you know, he eventually, you know, basically Chris Knight again says, Noam rejects my description of Deutsch as someone who brought biological warfare research to MIT. He alleges that in making this claim, I relied exclusively on an unreliable source, the underground student newspaper, The Thistle. This is quite untrue. Simplifying again, Noam overlooks the fact that I backed up, wow, calling him Noam, first name, overlooks Mm. the fact that I backed up my account with additional references from MIT's own newspaper, The Tech. Let me quote from this newspaper. Beginning in 1980, Deutsch took a part in a classified defense science board study on chemical warfare and biological defense, and in 1984, Deutsch chaired another DSB task force on the same subject. Deutsch acknowledged that, and in that time period, he had alerted the chairman of the chemistry department and applied biological sciences department to available army contracts for mycotoxin research. He said that he sees nothing inappropriate with that action. The tech also <laughs> reported scientists in chemistry and the applied biological sciences at MIT received $1.6 million from the Army to conduct basic research in toxins that could be used in biological warfare. Cool. Um, yes. Hmm. Uh, that was the, the main thing. Yeah, there was some other like, small debate over like a little... Uh, you know, uh, thing, but he did say that he wished he had included in his book, uh, this quote from nature, uh, from 1982, uh, edition of, of the journal. Two years ago, the Pentagon's Defense Science Board, chaired by John Deutsch of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, recommended a start in the production of binary weapons, that's like nerve gas weapons, mm-hmm. that the Department of Defense should prepare for a major increase in its chemical warfare program. Uh, mm-hmm. he says, I hope that makes the point of, about the sort of science that Deutsch was involved in. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and he writes, yeah, again, the issue is Gnome's Gnome's eagerness to defend his MIT colleagues as if their research priorities were not military at all, but were somehow compatible with his own anti-militarist commitments. 
you know, and yes. uh, and yeah, he goes on to talk about you know, kind of basically to recapitulate what his his book says about uh, how like his early work was like heavily sponsored by the military and that he was you know uh, Chomsky said himself I was in a military lab. If you take a look at my early publications, they all say something about Air Force, Navy, and so on because I was in a military lab, the research lab for electronics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so it was all you know military supported. Uh, his early work and like in the acknowledgments of his early books, you know, they, they uh, credit the funding that he received from military sources. I mean, yeah, the military funds a lot of things, especially in the sciences, which Chomsky was trying mm-hmm. to establish linguistics as being part of. But, yeah. you know, like this is something like to uh, like uh, talk about and like not conceal. Yes. Like what the hell, you know, like uh, and it sounds so similar. And I'd be interested, I, I confess to like not knowing the uh, the entire like, you know, chain of lineage. But it sounds like he was part of the vaster project that would eventually become uh, ARPANET and then finally the Internet. And he was even working on certain parts of it, like Sage, which directly did, uh, though it was happening, I guess, a little bit more on the West Coast. Uh, didn't we read in a very early episode how Lewis Terman's son kind of wanted to, like, take the crown away from Harvard and MIT and Yale and make Stanford, like, a big player in this kind of a electronics research? I don't recall. Maybe. I, uh, I, maybe I read that but didn't mention it on the episode. Uh, I'd love to get mm. back to Termin, the Termins one day. But I think you really did see it, like, SRI at, like, UCLA and Stanford. They, I guess, found a way to construct a programming language. It sounds like they were they were grasping at the same goal, but the actual use of Chomsky's universal grammar concept, unless I'm wrong, unless in some way they did directly influence the development of programming languages for computers, which was happening basically happened. I mean, ARPANET started in what 1969. So I mean, this is like in the imminent lead up to like the the rollout of the first version of the internet, and Chomsky. Just on that level alone, like Chomsky kind of has like nothing to say about the internet in it. That's like he he's almost like kind of on it. He's not he's no more interested in it than anybody else who might make like a casual op- observation about like the effects of social media or something like that. But he seems like he doesn't even want to go near this topic at all because it would get too hot too fast. And all of a sudden we'd be wondering like, okay, you were pretty close to all this. Like maybe you're, you know, they they sponsored multiple different approaches. Chomsky's was one that they thought was going to work. And if it had, it would have become like kind of a a foundational part of the, like a building block of the internet. Uh, But I guess it didn't, it seems, but I I mean, we don't, we don't don't really know, but yeah, I mean, I would think that, like, obviously that would have some kind of, some sort of uh, influence or some sort of connection. Like, you know, I mean, this is a huge revolution. Like, language, as like uh, as Knight pointed out, you know, this is something that elevated the status of computer science to mm-hmm. having, like, direct relevance to human beings. You know, his work is actually really uh, influential, and he would like make these comparisons to computers and he was kind of at least his work was used as uh, part of this you know uh, big sort of utopian blush over the possibility mm. of the internet uh so I'm, I, hmm. you know I think, yeah you know, yeah uh, I, I yeah mean, it's, it's easy to because hmm. yeah i feel yeah. like his big kind of like bugbear was behaviorism and the you know the reason why he was so opposed to that uh according to him is that 
you know, it was like totalitarian, you know, like yeah. uh, you could use behaviorism, you know, going by that, according to that, uh, that theory, that methodology, that framework, you could just like shape people using like social mechanisms of control to do or believe whatever you wanted. Yeah, but, which know, isn't which isn't a wrong yeah. concern to have about B.F. Skinner and behaviorism. Like B.F. Skinner's yeah, pretty sus. No, but it is interesting that like he had such an impact on the development of the idea of the mind as like a wet CPU, <laughs> uh, <laughs> like and therefore like you would th- like to me I think of, like a computers as being programmable. You know, like whatever their like uh, hardware is or whatever, you know, if they have like inbuilt firmware or something that's like a language DNA code thing, you can, if you can, you can hack it still, you know, uh, you can hack the system if the mind is a computer, you know. Yeah, so. exactly. Well, th- that is leading me to, I'm going to drop a, like a bit of a, a hot take, like hypothesis of a way of looking at a lot of this like linguistic work and, or, or really just pose this question, but in some ways, was Noam Chomsky sort of like a technocratic capitalist Lysenkoist for the Americans? Like, yeah, I, I think actually, and, and I'm speaking as not true. an ex, not an expert on Lysenkoism by any means. I am fascinated. I'd love to do an episode about it one day. Uh, but I, I just, if we're even just taking kind of the normative understanding of Lysenkoism, that it was like ideologically motivated, and it, it's like ideology like got in the way. Of you know, and like debunking, uh, God, what was it like well, Lamarckism yeah. or whatever? Like basically, like offering a whole new theory of how you know, like uh, genetics and things like that, and how uh, there, there were things about it about how like nature like naturally tended towards cooperation instead of like struggle and violence, and like the idea that like the animal kingdom was like a vicious, you know, like the the biological world of like plants and animals was like inherently like violent and like every being for itself was like bourgeois propaganda. And, you know, like there was that whole thing, but there was like an ideological use value contained in doing that. So, you know, you could just say like, oh, but the science, like, but we all know that like science is always mediated by whoever's in charge. Uh, whatever, whoever's kind of in charge of the power structure. And it would be really naive to assume that those types of things in a variety of ways weren't going on in our, you know, in the United States at that time and like in the West. And so in a way, it's like Chomsky, even though his line of theorizing kind of ended up in a little bit of a dead end, it was ideologically productive and therefore was a part of this larger project, even if he didn't discover, like, the actual well, Da Vinci Code like, of how well, to create the, the internet. Well, that's the whole thing with Chomsky, is that, like, the evidence, like, you know, isn't there. Well, that's at least what his, you know, maybe his defenders would say something different. But what his critics say, and what I think he himself acknowledges about earlier formulations of his theory, is that it's just, like, the idea and, like, the facts supporting it aren't really present. Like, you can't actually <laughs> prove it. it. He has a lot of that, like, uh, there's a lot of that kind of, like, uh, the vibe of that guy who did those experiments on yes, recognition. I totally, and then yeah, people yeah. Were like, this can't be replicated. He was like, what do you, well, like, none of my work has ever been able to be replicated. And yeah. I'm, like, a celebrated, like, you know, it's like, <laughs> what are you talking block. about? Yeah, like, what do you mean? Yeah, that's kind of, like. Who cares? kind of get that impression <laughs> with Chomsky, where, like. You know, I think that there's even some quote where he says something like, someone asked him, like, what is minimalism? And he mm. says something like, I guess it's the best explanation we currently have for what language is. Or something like, you know, his new uh, thing is Okay, his, that's his know, new minimalism, take. Minimalism, right? Okay. Um, yeah. 
Um, oh yeah, no, uh, this is, again, this is from the same blog we, we were reading before. As a result of all this, one sympathetic interviewer felt bold enough to ask, what exactly is UG at this stage, universal grammar? Chomsky mm-hmm. replied, well, what's universal grammar? It's anybody's best theory about what language is at this point. I can make my own guesses. Summing up decades of intensive work then, Chomsky can only tell us the nature of UG is anyone's guess. When a theory tells you that anything goes, you really do know this is not science. Um, so there is definitely like a certain boldness to it. Like, again, I yeah. kind of like appreciate uh, the audacity of it. Um, and it kind of, but yeah, you definitely get the sense of like looking like you can... Uh, shape the facts to fit it and he like you know he openly yeah. kind of talks about like Galileo or whatever and saying mm-hmm. like well Galileo couldn't prove heliocentricity or whatever uh, mm-hmm. you know but um, or he but some he, would say like, nobody knew, has no just kidding um, uh, <laughs> yes <laughs> or it was like, a Jesuit uh, psyop I heard that recently mm-hmm. um, yeah mm-hmm. yeah well he uh, said Copernicus something like Anyways. He said something like physics, uh, you know, like uh, in physics, there's like this principle that like things tend to be elegant and beautiful. So, you know, hmm. you can just apply that to like theorize. You don't need to necessarily have this idea of the facts or whatever, you know, or like uh, have any kind of like actual proof for it. Um, it's just the, the principle. What, like, you, uh, huh. you know, what's interesting about that is that Chomsky and he is kind of maybe a similar generation to that guy who talked about, like, what do you mean? Reproduce my studies. But it's basically it sounds like, you know, it's yeah, like when the mask comes off a little bit, he really is a social scientist at the end of the day, not a hard which scientist. Is shocking because he hates the, you know, the social scientists, the sciences and he doesn't consider them to be like real sciences or to have anything of value to say about it. Yeah, so much of his uh, ego yeah. is wrapped up in like well, but I this, would almost this firewall so far, personality. I think that, that is unfair to the social sciences to say that. Like, well, uh, yeah, no, I'm not, I, 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 no, in a way you're right. In a way it is uh, unfair. Because like, he it's hasn't like, done any significant social scientific work. Like, yes. he certainly, like, you know, I mean, he really is in a way like more of a STEM guy, but like is his, like, is his theory about language like true like maybe in a way well that, so that's kind of like, what i mean the is letters like he's, of the arabic alphabet are like inscribed upon he, like yeah. you know, the fabric of the universe and like the quran like <laughs> you know uh was like god's uncreated speech honestly like reading about this like makes me want to compare like chomsky's theories with like you know like hanbali and like harufi like ideas uh about like the you know uncreated quran but like like seriously that's like really what this most resembles to me i guess what yeah uh, i think that no that makes a lot of sense and i I think maybe what i mean by that is like was he at heart like really like a confused social scientist who didn't think he was a social scientist but he was and like he was doing like an insight role in like the stem field but like and i'm not saying like that's really what he thought he was but just looking at like what objectively he sort of did and the work he produced and then like his uh, sort of allegedly like like separate like political kind of personality that he had you know is like a kind of political philosopher mm-hmm. um yeah well it, i think that's what he is i think that he's a philosopher like not yeah, really yeah. uh like a scientist well exactly uh, and this was like him like invading the stem field with like generous assistance from the pentagon to basically like launch and a kind of ideologically beneficial or compatible 
uh, new paradigm of thinking in the STEM field to like get people to like approach things, the, the building of computer technology differently and like command and control yeah. systems. And maybe you had to almost in a kind of like quasi like Maoist way, like you had to change the thinking of the people that were working in these like these fields to imagine something that was like highly abstract but like possible but like possible if you were programming a machine you know you could actualize it in this so in a way it's like it never panned out on the human side in terms of like that was ostensibly what he was doing was trying to explain human language and human grammar but it was applicable to a bunch of networked machines and i mean i guess even then it, it allegedly it broke down in this like once you got to the 70s because they realized that uh, his actual like formulas and stuff, all these like mathy principles and you know calculations that he wrote uh, to basically explain universal grammar like didn't really have any relevance because they were kind of like smoking mirrors. It's actually mirrors. funny that you mentioned that because uh, there's this book that he wrote uh, that's very hard to find. Uh, this is oh, great. This is you know again from Knight's book, which like mm-hmm. will draw on heavily as one of the the prominent critiques of, of Chomsky here. Mm-hmm. Um, so he says. The benefits, you know, talking about uh, the Pentagon sponsorship, the benefits Mm -hmm. went beyond finance. Pentagon endorsement on such a scale gave the impression that even if much of Chomsky's work seemed incomprehensible, it must surely be good science. The military Mm. are hard-headed folk. You know, this kind of reminds me a little bit of Theranos almost, actually. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. George Schultz invested in it. James Mattis, Mad Dog Mattis invested. How could it be a fraud? Yeah, uh, they would, like the military are hard-headed folk. They would not be wasting their money on some left-wing activist nonsense. The mm-hmm. most awe-inspiring and incomprehensible of all Chomsky's writings at the time was his full-length work, The Logical Structure of Linguistic Theory, written during his years as a junior fellow at Harvard. In 1955, the University of Pennsylvania awarded Chomsky his PhD for submitting a thesis consisting of just one chapter, uh, I wish, uh, which he had been <laughs> yeah, allowed what, to excerpt that from that fabled work. It doesn't, like, you don't even know, like, how bad this gets. Like, he talked about wow. how, like, his advisor, like, never read his dissertation, like, or anything like that, you know? So, uh, huh. and, well, anyway, so what he said, okay, go, yeah, he was go allowed on. to excerpt yeah. one chapter for his thesis. Rumors of the complete manuscript's vast erudition and significance depended in part on the potent factor of mystery. First, it was written in dense mathematical formulae. Secondly, it was almost impossible to get hold of a copy. Even the copies which did exist seemed to have been changed in each reprinting, so that no one knew quite which version was supposed to be the authentic one. The magic evidently worked. As dense as the book is, uh, as restricted to its, as its availability was, and as partially read as it was, even by those few who had access to copies, the very existence of the manuscript stood as a guarantor to any gaps of coverage or generality of explication that I perceived as intact structures. This is a quote, I guess, from some uh, earlier Chomsky critic, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, those who loathe Chomsky and all his works include, predictably enough, a number of prominent linguists on the political right. Two of these, however, Paul Postal and Jeffrey Sampson, were formerly ardent champions of the Chomskyan revolution, which complicates any simplistic attempt to dismiss their intellectual skepticism as political ideology. Mm. In recent years, Postal has taken to denouncing Chomsky for his un-American activities, condemning his political output as all of a piece with his junk linguistics. Uh, such diatribes do little to foster rational debate, but not all Postal's criticisms of Chomsky and his, quote, biolinguistics followers are so easily dismissed. Samson's disillusionment first became evident in a 1979 book review. Scandalously, he described Chomsky's 1955 dissertation, now at long last published for all to see, as a long book full of algebraic notation 
which may look impressive to the mathematically naive, but which when carefully examined turns out to be mathematically semi-literate, containing mm. various expressions which are meaningless, Ooh. or say something other than what the author evidently wants to say, or at best choose a gratuitously obscure way of saying something which a competent mathematician would express straightforwardly. Uh, wow. So, wow. I mean, yeah. I'm getting I'm getting intense flashbacks now, which I might have mentioned once before, like picking up, like going to Moe's bookstore in Berkeley when I was a teenager after reading like my first Chomsky book. And I was like, this guy's got all the answers. And I went and they had all these Chomsky books there. And I decided to like I saw one of the ones on linguistics and was like, oh, yeah, this guy. Everyone says this guy's a genius. And I opened it up. And it, like, made my brain just, like, melt. Like, it was so arcane. And it was, like, looking at, like, a, like a grimoire or something. Like, it was yeah. so abstract and, like, all full of these formulas. And, like, I've never been a math person. But I feel like even if I was, it was, like, such a heavy assault of just, like, occulted information and data that was making, like, really big sweeping claims about, like, the, you know, human nature and all these things. And I remember just, like, putting it back and be like, I'm going to stick to his, like, political stuff. Like, you know, like, I'm... I, yeah. I, I, I was successfully the psyoped by it. I was like intimidated by this dude's writing. It was like, whoa, this is like too complicated. And so it's quite liberating to hear that uh, other linguists like called him out for yeah. just publishing and kind of like who mad were lib formerly, gibberish. Like, super big Chomskyans who were like, you know, uh, danking him in the prefaces to their books and talking about how like his mm. theories would have. I have a, th you know, I have like, a theory about that. I have a theory athletes. about how that how that how that could make sense. If in the early 60s they were working with him, even if they knew he had like sort of like lefty anarchist leanings, they believed that he was like contributing essential research for like building military command and control systems because they were right wing. Mm. Right. They would have probably yeah. been in support of that. But then the combination of him kind of going above ground to like become this figure that's like anti-Vietnam War and then the military's realization of finding a different way to build command and control systems and through ARPANET and things like that meant that now his linguistic gibberish was of no longer like strategic tactical use to like the United States government and the military. Yeah. And he was running around like trash talking the troops. So now all of a sudden it was like, you know what? Like, wait, and maybe they went back and read some of his stuff or he finally got published. And they're like, you know what? Like, fuck this guy. I would imagine you're in academia that, you know, if you catch a colleague who's getting tons of celebrity and especially yeah. if they have politics I mean, that are repugnant many, to you. Well, there are many people like that where, yeah, there's many people like that who like, you know, it's uh, academia or writing, you know, this is kind of in a way, this is almost a Foucauldian, uh, interestingly, uh, well, you know, what Foucault would say is that like, especially in, you know, even in the sciences, you know, there's mm -hmm. a certain contingency, like knowledge uh, isn't, you know, the whole idea of like the objective knowledge or like the, you know, it is con uh, conditioned by like what the the object of the society is, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Halak, someone who I very much admire, you know, who's very much a Picotian in uh, his thinking, you know, uh, would ask the question of like, uh, you know, the resources existed for societies in the past, like, uh, you know, China at the height of, uh, you know, uh, various times in history, you know, it's a, mm -hmm. it's a civilization um, or, you know, pre-modern Islam, like they might have had the capacity to invent these technologies like to, to wage the genocides or whatever but they didn't you know because like the the what the science uh is you know the the reason or the logic always needs some kind of reason to animate it so like even though it's very hard for people to get beyond the it's like a kind of a pillar of 
our beliefs now that like science is immutable and that like there's no you know but that's not mm-hmm. epistemologically bound or anything but uh, you know that's kind of the the Foucauldian take that these things for instance like in you know uh mentioned in the debate the history of madness you know the uh Chomsky was like would well, mental illness definitely have some objective reality but of mm-hmm. course, like in different times, like the idea of mental illness, like, you know, it's perceived quite differently, like, the, yeah, different epistemes would perceive mental illness differently, you know, like yes. uh, demonic possession or holiness, even, you know, something like, so that's one example. But I also think that in academia, you know, there's an aspect of performativity, you know, mm. that I think that uh, people like Foucault, like really brought where, you know, you had to perform kind of your authority and you know he did like kind of a a convincing performance there's a book called like uh i think like challenging the challenging chomsky is what it's Mm -hmm. called and it's all about like uh you know how brilliant chomsky is as like uh like a an intellectual duelist or whatever Mm -hmm. you know and his his tactics where he'll like lure people into like the maze yeah uh you know and just like destroy them on Mm -hmm. his own turf because yes. he's able to figure out a way to set the parameters of of the contest. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, like, he is uh, quite good. At, he is, I think, legitimately talented at that as a rhetorician, as a debater, as a kind of a though I think it, it often and I think he usually tends to uh, agree only to debate in situations where he can fight on his own turf. Mm-hmm. I think especially when you get into talking to people that are maybe like to the left of him uh that gets like really if they don't show deference to him or they start critiquing him like those uh like those people asking questions you know on the debate show and especially i guess as he's gotten older uh he seems to be extremely hostile towards uh people taking him in a territory that where he can't reframe it with uh his i don't know but as he's gotten older, I think it might be good to to maybe jump back to like more, you know, today. And I had linked here a pretty, I remember when this came out, but uh, it was from uh, Lorenzo AE, who I believe used to be on Twitter and then uh, like, you know, quit or something. Uh, and they had a blog, which I don't know is still live, Lorenzo AE at wordpress.wordpress.com. They published Noam Chomsky and the Compatible Left in March of 2019, and it's like a pretty great takedown from somebody who is uh, kind of more on the like anti-imperialist left uh, than particularly, you know, kind of Marxist uh, or ML kind of persuasion, like really going in on Noam Chomsky, but also relating to like a lot of the kind of like alternative left media outlets and stuff and like that whole ecosystem that exists today and how Chomsky is kind of like he really is the the paramount living saint of that entire media ecosphere and I mean in a way Chomsky is a media figure uh I don't know in terms of his actual impact uh he's more of a media figure than a kind of academic or even a philosopher. Yeah, he's, like, he's a public intellectual. He's a public you know, intellectual, but, one of the very few we have yeah. left. So I'm just going to read a, a couple things uh, that I think Lorenzo, like, really nailed and, like, slays a, a, a lot of <clears throat> slays a lot of fakers along the way. Um, so this will be a fun ride. Um, and it, it starts out particularly, I think, in reaction to, uh, to Noam Chomsky's comments about Syria in 2019, when uh, Donald Trump 
uh, pulled back support for the based Rojava Kurds. Uh, Noam Chomsky, I think, right. like a, like publicly in the Intercept, uh, you know, lambasted that decision and said we should send the U.S. military like into northern Syria to like defend them from you know Turkey or ISIS or whatever. So that's the <clears throat> that's the frame up that uh, got people kind of pissed. Uh, and okay, so Noam Chomsky recently took to the pages of the Intercept to give his blessing to the U.S. military's occupation of Syria, solidifying his support for the Pentagon after years of having done so in slightly more anguished terms. As far as the occupation, the only concession to what might once have been considered leftist values is the MIT professor's acknowledgement that the U.S. is motivated by, quote, power considerations rather than humanitarian objectives. Today, the brief nod to real politique uh, is what's supposed to pass for the for a progressive anti-war stance. The Intercept is really a natural fit for Chomsky to deliver this message. The nonagenarian professor has limited years left on Earth, and when he passes, Glenn Greenwald and Pierre Omidyar's website will probably become the new face of the permissible left. That Chomsky lends his radical imprimatur to a U.S. military occupation in its pages is a testament to what kind of a left Chomsky has helped to create and is bequeathing to Greenwald and Omidyar. Uh, then he, he talks about Alfred McCoy, who wrote The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia, and how he got harassed by the CIA for that. But then today he's like chilling with Jer- Jeremy Scahill, uh, saying really weird things like the British Empire was relatively benign and uh, like Russians are barbaric, kind of sounding like, I don't know, like a weird opposite LaRouche. Uh, but anyways, he, then he continues, uh, getting radical scholars and scholars with radical reputations to sound like they're writing for Foreign Affairs magazine is very much the intercept stock and trade. Um, the day after Trump threatened to military interve- militarily intervene in Venezuela, writes Stanfield Smith, Jeremy Scalho posted his, his interview with Ava Gollinger of the, on The Intercept. Uh, she's kind of a sus lord. Venezuelan American lawyer Ava Gollinger, the author of The Chavez Code, Cracking U.S. Intervention in Venezuela, is known as an outstanding defender of Venezuela during the Chavez era. She hardly goes as far in anti-Maduro criticisms as Scahill, who may fit what Seamus Cook characterized as the intellectual lazy pox on both houses approach that has long infested the U.S. left, according to Smith. Yet within her valuable analysis, and precisely because of her valuable analysis, both in the interview and in her article, Gullinger makes some statements that require correction. Um, and, Newber- and he wrote, enumerating 11 points where Gollinger provided Washington-friendly misrepresentations of the Venezuelan government. She responded with a popular twofer of claiming lived experience and accusing a critic of hating women. Um, so, uh, yeah, I do remember that happening. The billionaire-owned publication is just the latest, loudest voice among the permissible left, an ecosystem of which Chomsky is still the most recognizable face. Since the late 1960s, Chomsky has both reflected and shaped this milieu. A reverent 1997 book on the MIT professor written by Robert Barsky, which advertises itself as the closest thing we'll get to a Chomsky autobiography, contains a major section titled The Milieu Chomsky Helped to Create, attesting to the professor's privileged privileged place in this world. If one considers radical according to its true definition, solving a problem by striking at its root, then it is a world of dissenters who are less radical than ever. The left has taken quite a journey from the 1960s, the beginning of Chomsky's career as a political commentator, to now. During that time, what people perceive as the left transformed from something which was usually opposed to the status quo and genuinely radical into something more like what CIA official Cord Meyer called the, quote, compatible left, an agglomeration of liberals and pseudo-intellectual status seekers who are easily influenced, that's a quote, by the elites that they purport to challenge, in the words of uh, Doug Valentine. 
One of the primary purposes of courting the compatible left, according to Valentine, was to court socialists away from communists and into safe channels. Chomsky is a uniquely useful figure for demonstrating how these changes happened, although his more recent work owes a great debt to Barack Obama. The latter's presidency was a powerful fulcrum for shifting the wider culture of left liberalism, of which Chomsky is an avatar and gatekeeper, far to the right. And both have played large roles in turning the Western left in what it is today. And uh, the next header, what made radicals radical? What made the left leftist? But before delving into uh, more into what America's most famous dissident is saying now, it's necessary to get a general sense of the radical political ecosystem in the late 1960s, the point at which Chomsky began his ascent to national prominence. One of the reasons why revolution seemed not only possible, but to many, even inevitable, was due to the diverse network of interests and progressive groups working towards similar goals. The radical coalition included a substantial left liberal milieu of which Chomsky would eventually become the preeminent figurehead. There are plenty of left liberal activists from the era who can make for a useful case study in taking the temperature of this milieu, but Carl Oglesby might be the most illuminating. And this is good stuff here. Uh, Oglesby was a labor activist who became a president of the SDS. Like Chomsky, he also published books and articles of political analysis, and like Chomsky, he identified as a non-Marxist leftist. In his 1967 essay, Vietnamese Crucible, he called for activists to look beyond the, quote, socialist radical, the corporatist conservative, and the welfare state liberal, and seek answers from the traditions of American democratic populism and the American libertarian right. Crucible was a 170-page analysis of American capitalism and imperialism, particularly as it related to Vietnam and the Cold War, the first major statement in book form from the New Left. Unlike Chomsky, Oglesby's, uh, Oglesby's eminence as a radical analyst and scholar was due to his status as movement leader, not due to his elevation by ruling class institutions like the New York Review of Books and MIT. Oglesby described himself as a radical centrist and a centrist libertarian. He delves into this in his memoirs, where he describes his political beliefs and says that they make him a centrist rather than a typical new leftist. Chomsky is regularly identified by the media as a prominent anarchist, libertarian, communist, anarcho-syndicalist, pick as many as you like, observes one of Chomsky's main chroniclers. But more importantly, he places himself within this political spectrum. But it would be the height of idealism to put stock in the idea that people self-professed political identities carry much weight. There are all sorts of reasons why someone would fail to correctly situate themselves politically, beyond just being incorrect. In 2008, when the Bush brand was radioactive, Bill O'Reilly called himself an anarchist too. Filmmaker John Milius describes himself as either an anarchist or a fascist, depending on his mood. That's true. Tim Allen recently said he's not really a Trump supporter per se, more of kind of an anarchist. Yet despite Oglesby's self-identification, his place in the struggle caused him to develop the sort of organically materialist thinking that comes from marrying objective study to revolutionary action. In the pages of his seminal 1976 book, The Yankee and Cowboy War, which remains one of the best books on America's ruling classes, he ended up sounding like a communist. Quote, the distinction between the East Coast monopolist and the Western tycoon entrepreneur is the main class economic distinction set out by the Yankee cowboy perspective. It arises because one naturally looks for a class economic basis for this apparent conflict at the summit of American power. That is because one must assume that parties without a class economic base could not endure struggle at that height. The whole thrust of the Yankee cowboy interpretation posits a divided social historical American order, conflict wracked in dialectical rather than serene and hierarchical, in which results constantly elude every faction's intentions because all conspire against each and each against 
all. Um, and uh, also worth quoting, this will be relevant to Chomsky, is Oglesby's dissection of a piece by liberal columnist Andrew St. George, who purports to explain Vietnam and Watergate through psychohistory and inept empire bumbling. <laughs> Adam Curtis, uh, sorry. Um, <laughs> St. George knows or surmises, this is a quote from Oglesby, uh, that a conflict shoots through the CIA, through the presidency, through the entire executive system, and that effective presidential command and control are the more deeply in doubt, the deeper one goes into the heart of the national defense and security establishments. Then why try to explain breakdowns when they occur as though they were the result of, quote, turning away from reality, from empirical data, provable facts, rational truth, toward image-making and self-deception? Why ignore the overwhelming differentials of policy and faction at play in these breakdowns. It is not Nixon himself, the Joint Chiefs, or the CIA whom Nixon, the Chiefs, and the CIA are deceiving. It is only ordinary people. Nixon knew he was secretly bombing Cambodia. The Joint Chiefs knew they were secretly bombing exempted targets in North Vietnam. The defense and security establishment knew that peace with honor was a slogan with a hatch in the bottom, and that peace mandate Nixon would secure it uh, with it was pre-structured for easy transmutation into a war mandate. Watergate cannot be reduced to a question of Nixon's personal psychology. He was not deceiving himself, only others. He was not deceiving his class. Whatever words he chose to describe himself, Oglesby's analysis was moving towards something objectively Marxist, because his radical movement necessitated a Marxist analysis if there was any hope of understanding reality accurately, acting on it, and then changing it. Oglesby's work is a useful lesson in how the nature of the era's liberatory struggles forced even the centrists to act and think in a substantively radical way if they wanted to be effective instead of irrelevant. The nature of the struggle meant that plenty of revolutionaries ended up following similar intellectual paths. Malcolm X began his adult life as a petty criminal, before gaining what the Nation of Islam called knowledge of self and joining the conservative black nationalist NOI. But his revolutionary work was a liberation struggle and not an academic exercise, so his theory was tested and revised. X came to sound like a communist. Quote, show me a capitalist and I'll show you a bloodsucker, he said in 1964 after returning from his final trip to Africa. He even delivered lessons in dialectical and historical materialism, like, quote, capitalism used to be like an eagle, but now it's more like a vulture. It's only a matter of time, in my opinion, before it will collapse completely. He explained the base superstructure relationship in terms that anyone could understand, analogizing capitalism surrendering white supremacy or evolving into socialism as akin to a chicken laying a duck egg. A chicken... Quote, a chicken just doesn't have it in it to produce a duck egg. It can't do it. The system in this country cannot produce freedom for the Afro-American. It is impossible, period. He came to see race and classes interlinked and explained the annihilation of white supremacy would not come without the end of capitalism, as he said in a speech delivered three days before his murder. Quote, it is incorrect to classify the revolt of the Negro as simply a racial conflict of black and white or as a purely American problem. Rather, we are today seeing a global rebellion of the oppressed against the oppressor, the exploited against the exploiter. This is increasingly common in response uh, to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Beyond Vietnam speech, where, where King connected imperialism abroad to white supremacy at home. An FBI memorandum warned that King's condemnation was, quote, a direct parallel of the communist position on Vietnam. Um, and so I'll... I'll hop off there, you know, uh, he continues yeah. to talk about Oglesby and Peter Dell Scott and their theory of deep politics and parapolitics and all these things. Basically, all these things that uh, Chomsky doesn't give a fuck about, basically, at the end of the day. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, do Chomsky's, like, Chomsky doesn't have, like, theories about politics. 
really. Like, you know, he's not... Actually, you mentioned uh, dialectics and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that Malcolm X had... I don't know about that guy's conclusion that Malcolm X became a... Maybe he sounded like a communist to... Sort of, I, I think but, what he means is he was... Yeah. It, it's like, you know, it's like Angus Khan. Like, he was, he was a Muslim and he didn't even know it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right. Of course, yeah. yeah this is a classic thing of, like, claiming... But, but I think there's yeah, a lot of truth... Um, I think there's but, a lot of truth in that. Like, you know, it's like... Because if you dismiss Carl Oglesby and his books and his research and everything because he technically called himself like a radical centrist but he was using yeah. the tool it's like it, i think there's a really good point that no i definitely agree with that yeah, yeah it I doesn't kind of matter what you call yourself no i but fully f- agree yeah and i think that that's very important that like a lot of the time i mean chomsky is one example like i mean a libertarian socialist might set off red flags but i think even a lot of the time people who are like i'm a you know marxist or like i'm a marxist Lenin or whatever it doesn't mean anything like it like you know it's about what actually you're espousing. Uh, Chomsky's yeah. a good example in terms of like the, the idea of being on the left or whatever. But yeah, that actually reminded me, like the mention of dialectics reminded me an amazing quote uh, by Chomsky where uh, he said, dialectics is one that I've never understood actually. This really lends itself to Chomsky's point, <laughs> but uh, uh, I've just never understood what the word means. And if anybody can tell me what it is, I'll be happy. I mean, uh. I've read all kinds of things to talk about dialectics. I've never, I haven't had the foggiest idea of what it is. Uh, this is like if you think this is bad now, just just wait. Oh my god! I'll tell you the honest truth. I'm kind of simple-minded when it comes to these things. Whenever I hear a four-syllable word, I get skeptical because I want to make sure you can't say it in monosyllables. When words like dialectics come along, like Goring, I reach for my revolver. Oh no! <laughs> yes, he literally said, "When I hear dialectics, I reach for my revolver." Oh my god! <laughs> um, That's literally like, the most Nazi thing I've ever heard. This is so insane. Yeah, <laughs> the most fascist like, thing I've ever heard. What a bizarre thing to say! Like it's more fascist you know, than the original quote. Like it's like yeah. particularly when I hear Marxist dialectics, I reach for my revolver. It is arguably more fascinating than a quote, which, by the way, wasn't by Goering, but I guess... It was. It was uh, like a playwright. It was a Nazi playwright yeah, who did yeah, it. Yeah, Nazi play, playwright. Right? Hans Joost, yeah. I think. Uh, what was it? Like, when I hear the word culture, I reach for my gun? Hans Joost? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I hear the word culture. I, I undo the safety on my browning, I believe, is the original <laughs> uh, one. Um, wow, Chomsky. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, the Holocaust not as bad as Trump canceling emission standards for trucks, yes, but also but like I'm gonna quote. I'm gonna think I'm quoting yeah. Gehring to denounce dialectics, which I don't understand. Um, wow, like but, intellectual towering figure. Uh, I'm awed by yeah, his brilliance. Um, oh my god. Yeah, but like, and the idea that he can't wrap his mind around dialectics, like you know, obviously there are different formulations of the idea of the dialectic. For instance, between like Marx and Hegel, but like, of course, he'd never like wasted his time on this because ultimately he's a STEM guy, but mm-hmm. his like science ideas like are a little bit like weird. You know, the same way he says like I, uh, there is a little bit of Elizabeth Holmes in him, like the way you know he says. Uh, hmm. My political positions haven't changed much since about 12 or 13. You know, there is a little bit of like, you know, what if this were the case? Like, uh, but, and really, you know what? It really is very similar because the way yeah. he performs his theories a lot of the time is in terms of the machine, you know, the universal yeah. translator, the language machine. So like kind of it's all just about, like her little like, blood know, device that's gonna like yeah, you know exactly. be the, totally the, universal the, the, right yeah like what's it's inside actually the box an... like it's always changing or like you know but it's the all the idea of it like that's it. and then outside. meanwhile like it's some version of is being used in Afghanistan for un, like classified purposes it's actually an extremely yeah. apt metaphor like Theranos and Noam Chomsky's entire career 
are kind of yeah. like you know if like she was writing for like um you know the new yorker or something like dropping political hot takes or something uh it would have been almost identical <laughs> or i suspect yeah. there is an identical thing because i b- do believe that she was doing something that was not what she said she was doing and those people were not just dumb military heads and like you know uh political grandees that got suckered in by like a hot girl in a turtleneck i believe that there was something sinister going on there that basically like and then she ended up kind of being like the patsy well i mean she was yeah and she was totally like bankrupt by 2016 so i feel like if we did like if her grift had kept going into the trump era like we would have seen like elizabeth holmes like take some kind of weird political stand like uh you're right you're right it did end right before she would have been involved in like trying to make sure that uh you know we make like you know we understand what facts are you know and that we don't slide into (laughs) conspiracy theories and and yeah yeah but but Um, that idea of like somebody like a, a towering figure in like the stem world who's actually like doing an insight role and is like yeah. kind of covering up for something that's actually or something just the military like sort is doing. Of, yeah, exactly. Or yeah, or like an idea that is appealing, obviously, uh, but mm. do, like, you know, for the practical applications that it would have, like for the military, but like they're not really able to like do adequate peer review. Like really Chomsky admits like part of the reason why he didn't like, you know, he started off in the military because he, you know, not to say that academia, as I said before, you know, there's a lot of charlatans or people who are, you know, just kind of performing or whatever in academia for sure. But I mean, he himself kind of says like part of the reason why I, you know, was in the military at first, you know, or why I was in a military lab was because I couldn't get, I couldn't go anywhere else, you know, like, uh, he talks a lot. And I'm like, just think of like how the standards and the competition has like changed, you know, it's mm-hmm. really like that same kind of, uh, I'm gonna try to find like where he calls his PhD like a fraud or whatever. Who did he? Uh, who did he call a fraud? Uh, he called his own PhD like a fraud. Um, oh wow! Wow. Yes. Uh, Interesting. Yes, I believe. Uh, like in in reference to Zelig Harris, uh, like uh, his his advisor. Yes, yeah, so Zelig Harris, you know, would say that. My uh, many conversations with Chomsky have sharpened the work presented here in addition to being a great pleasure in themselves, you know, and uh, talking about his books, Chomsky's books and tactic structures. Uh, following his turn to political activism, Chomsky began denying that Harris had helped him in any way. Referring to his morphonemics of modern Hebrew, Chomsky claims Harris never looked at it. Zelik Harris allegedly dismissed his entire approach as a private hobby, never paid the slightest attention to it, and probably thought, blank, it was crazy. On another occasion, Chomsky claims that Harris never looked at my 1949-1951 work on generative grammar, adding, it's next to inconceivable that Harris looked at my PhD dissertation or LSLT. What Knight had to say about that was that uh, these remarks, comments, one historian of the period, speak to Chomsky's narrative of isolation, pursuing a course so radical and difficult that it was incomprehensible to and incapable of sustaining any interest from any and all linguists, even his own supervisor. Such allegations, continues this historian, are outrageous. If true, they suggest stunning professional negligence. If false, Mm. this is just libel. Chomsky claimed that his supervisor and acknowledged mentor never looked at his BA thesis, his MA thesis, or his PhD dissertation, all of which Harris would have had to sign off uh, that he had read and approved, or at, uh, you know, LSLT, you know, which we had talked about before, the huge draft of dissertation, which was in modest but noteworthy circulation. Yale and Harvard had library copies, for instance, and which very prominently included Harris's innovation, uh, the transformation. 
Uh, so yeah. So like, he just uh, gets passed through the entire academic hierarchy and like rushed yes. through to get a PhD without anybody actually like checking his work. Um, yeah, no one, uh, checked, uh, his work. Uh, this is another part similar, like, uh, within, uh, with engaging modesty, he elaborates when I got my degree, uh, my PhD, which was a total fraud incidentally, I hadn't done any work or anything else. I had no professional qualifications at all, and that's why I went to MIT, because they didn't care, because they were getting a ton of Pentagon money. <laughs> um, so just come one, come all. Yeah, they didn't care that he hadn't done any work, um, and, uh, you know, he felt that his PhD was a fraud, uh, so... Yeah. Well, that I, that's not. A, that doesn't seem to be like a an incorrect way of looking well, at yeah, it. Well, yeah. Well, either he completely slandered his advisor just to portray himself as being too smart to be understood, or like yeah. his advisor didn't read it, which like would not be inconceivable at all. You know, like uh, <laughs> I remember like someone told me uh, a story about like you know back in that era where uh, someone like literally didn't know that their advisor was dead. <laughs> like, you know, like their advisor died like while they were in their and like came back and wow. they're like, it's been dead for months, you know? Oh so God, like wow. sometimes people don't like really have this sort of relationship, but it did seem almost like, at least they presented that they were being mentors. So I don't know. But uh, yeah, like uh, yeah, where did I mean, he develop all these brilliant ideas? Like if he wasn't being mentored by people, he just came up with well, all this stuff all on his own. The idea like isn't really that like you know is the idea brilliant or is it just kind of like what if there was a machine that could do any blood test like instantly, <laughs> yeah you know? yeah like, a hot idea like like a hot the idea is basically idea. that like there is a la- like it's an it's an idea as old as time you know like uh the i uh, literally when allah inscribed muhammad's name on the celestial throne like mm-hmm. that was an i uh, like a version of the i language but like actually like panini's grammar like the idea of language as being like uh you know uh or really like john d the idea of enochian like uh like they're like they're what if there was one language that you know the mother tongue that everything flowed out of more like yeah the adamic language that like you know adam gave all the names to things with like uh yeah not only like the you know the proto language the Ural language that all other languages evolved from that's one kind of wacky theory but churchomsky gets even more intense because he think he his theory is that there is like a, a a primordial language encoded in all of us that we all are born knowing and mm-hmm. then we like uh you know that's like uh the the idea like you know the i language that's what the the scientific yeah. study of linguistics is concerned with uh this is like some of the stuff that he said over the years like you know he's shifted and changed but Knight points out some of these really uh, interesting things that he's, he's said as part of this theory. Uh, first, he said that uh, a child acquires its native tongue by discarding one language after another from the vast repertoire of tongues installed in its head from birth. Uh, Chomsky said, it's pretty clear that a child approaches the problem of language acquisition by having all possible languages in its head, but doesn't know which <laughs> language it's being exposed to. And as data comes along, that class of possible languages reduces. So certain data comes along and the mind automatically says... Okay, it's not that language. It's some. It's some other language. Uh, <laughs> including, this is a great one. Uh, you know, and I really, I, I honestly like think that I admire the audacity of this. Uh-huh. Let's little concepts, including even industrial age ones such as carburetor, are not variable products of history and culture, but are somehow natural givens. However surprising the conclusion may be that nature has provided us with an innate stock of concepts, and that the child's <laughs> task is to discover their labels. The empirical facts appear to leave open 
few other possibilities. So the empirical facts leave open few other possibilities than that, like, we all have encoded in us, like, every single idea or word that will ever be had by humanity, and, like, we then, like, graph that onto, like, whatever the corresponding cluster of sounds is. Like, uh, this is literally like pla- Platonism. It's like, you know, uh, this is like, this is Platonism. Like, uh, yeah. you know, like, uh, the idea of like, you know, the ideal forms that like, uh, certain mm. objects participate in or whatever, you know, like, uh, um, yeah. And, you know, uh, he even points out this, this Chomsky quote, the language faculty interfaces with other components of the mind slash brain. How perfectly, if a divine architect were faced with the problem of designing something to satisfy these conditions, would actual human language be one of the candidates or close to it? Recent work suggests that language is surprisingly, quote, perfect in this sense. So it's weird. Chomsky is like low key, like, you know, obviously I feel like he's officially an atheist or at least an agnostic, but I believe he's so, low yeah. key, like, you know, uh, like a Harufi, like he's low key, like a lettrist. This sounds uh, you know, very. Like, this sounds very like in the beginning there was the word like almost like very like the type of thing yeah. a very religious person would start arguing and you know but coming at it from such a kind of like atheistic like STEM perspective and just saying yeah obviously this is how it is it's like yeah exactly um, and I think yeah like that's part of it the, doesn't seem yeah. obvious to me that we know every no. single language yes on so uh, many levels I have a lot of well, questions. Like, I have a yeah, lot of questions. Uh, that all languages follow, like, the same... I guess, well, that's the thing. Like, you could just say... Like, to say all languages follow the same structure or whatever, that there is, like, a primordial language in which all languages are based, I guess, yeah, like, if you just keep pruning away the different, like, a- attributes, like, you say all languages have this quality, and then it's like, well, what about this language? It's like, okay, well, not all languages have that quality. And eventually you get to the point where it's, like, yeah, all languages, incredibly like, vague. you know... Yeah, like if you're making uh, sounds like with your minimum. mouth and your tongue, and in a, in a re- repetitious order. Well, what about sign language? Uh, Ooh, you know, know it doesn't right. count. So uh, it's not making sounds necessarily. So it's something did, else. Did he you know? did he have an opinion on sign language as it related to this paradigm of universal grammar? I mean, uh, not that I know did he of, but believe he, that he it was never, part of it? like. I'm sure he did because sign language does have a, a, a grammar. You know, sign language ASL, for instance, isn't just like a bunch of hand signals for English. Sign language has like its own grammars, as, you know, as far as I know, which is, is not very far. But I, I believe that is true. Uh, like, there's mm-hmm. different sign languages, like you know, that are that are different, and it's not just a matter of like doing charades for different concepts or something. It's yeah, it's not just like the representing itself, right? like a subject yeah. or uh, a noun yeah. or something. Nouns and verbs, right? Like, yeah, there signals. is like a certain grammar to it. So yeah, I don't like. I think that right now he has this whole thing called the minimalist program. Which isn't okay. really like, so, yeah, we've talked about like, well, it's, uh, you know, whatever anyone's best idea is. Uh, but it's like, uh, you know, just the so completely pruned back that uh, like it doesn't actually have any conclusions. Like, uh, you know, uh, this is from Wikipedia, but it says in minimalism, Chomsky attempts to approach the universal grammar from below. That is proposing the question, what would be the optimal answer to what the theory of I language or inherent language should be and it's like well uh i mean he might have certain guesses but you know no one actually knows you're listening to soundtrack to the struggle 2 by low-key thank you for joining us gnome in optimism over despair you say it seems to me unlikely that civilization can survive really existing capitalism 
Would you be able to explain that statement for us? Really existing capitalism uh, is what we can see described in the uh, uh, press uh, day after day. We, we read that uh, the major banks like uh, J.P. Morgan Chase uh, are increasing their investment in fossil fuels, including the most dangerous, like Canadian tar sands. And uh, all of this is quite understandable on the assumption that our that the structure of our institutions is geared to maximizing short-term profit and power uh, without regard to uh, what might happen to uh, the world in another 20 or 30 years. But that's both capitalism, but we can't survive that. that, that. Uh, I did find this interview uh, that he gave with two Italian uh, scholars, I think, uh, mm-hmm. about the minimalist program. Um, okay. uh, it was in, I guess, uh, 2000 that he talked about it, um, or it was revised in, in March 2000. It was uh, the interview was conducted, I guess, in 1999. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, this talks about some of the ideas of minimalism, and I think he he says some interesting things uh, here. So. The interviewers ask, uh, at some point, some intuitions emerge from much work within the principles and parameters approach that economy considerations could have a larger role than previously assumed, and this ultimately gave rise to the minimalist program. What stimulated the emergence of minimalist intuitions? Was this related to the systematic success within the principles and parameters approach and also before of the research strategy consisting in eliminating redundancies, making the principles progressively more abstract in general, searching for symmetries, for instance, in the theoretically driven typology of null elements, etc.? So he is like, you know, they're talking about how like he's always trying to make the the I language or the inherent sort of language uh, more and more abstract, or at least his kind of, uh, you know, yeah, his approach to language is all about the elimination mm-hmm. of redundancy. So he talks about this. Actually, all of these factors were relevant in the emergence of the principles and parameters approach, which was the one before minimalism, I guess. Note mm-hmm. that it is not really a theory. It's an approach, a framework that articulated the search for redundancies that should be eliminated and provided a sort of new platform from which to proceed with much greater success, in fact. There had already been efforts, of course, to reduce the complexity, eliminate redundancies, and so on. This goes back very far. It's a methodological commitment with which anyone tries to do, and it accelerated with the principles and parameters framework. However, there was also something different shortly after the system began to crystallize by the early 80s. Even before the real explosion of descriptive and explanatory work, it began to become clear that it might be possible to ask new questions that hadn't been asked before. Not just a straightforward methodological question, can we make our theories better? Can we eliminate redundancies? Can we show that the principles are more general than we thought, develop more explanatory theories? But also, is it possible that the system of language itself has a kind of optimal design? So is language perfect? Back in the early 80s, that was the way I started every course. Let's ask, could language be perfect? And then I went on for the rest of the semester trying to address the question, but it never worked. The system always became very complicated. What happened by the early 90s is that somehow it began to work. Enough was understood. Something had happened. It was possible to ask the question in the first session of a course, could language be perfect, and then get some results which indicated it doesn't sound as crazy as you might think. Exactly why, I'm not so sure, but in the last seven or eight years, I think there have been indications that the question can be asked seriously. 
There is always an intuition behind research, and maybe it's off in the wrong direction, but my own judgment, for what it's worth, is that enough has been shown to indicate that it's probably not absurd and maybe very advisable to seriously ask the question whether language is a kind of optimal design. What does it mean for a language to have an optimal design? The question itself was sharpened and various approaches have been taken to it from a number of different points of view. There was a shift between two related but distinct questions. There is a kind of family similarity between the methodologically driven effort to improve the theories and the substantively driven effort to determine whether the object itself has a certain optimal design. For instance, if you try to develop a theory of an automobile that doesn't work with terrible design, which breaks down, say the car you had in Amherst, for example, if you wanted to develop a theory of that car, you would still try to make the theory as good as possible. I mean, you may have a terrible object, but you still want to make the theory as good as possible. So there's really two separate questions, similar but separate. One is, let's make our theories as good as whatever the object is, uh, as good as we can, whatever the object is. A snowflake, your car in Amherst, whatever it may be. And the other question is, is there some sense in which the device is optimal? Is it the best possible solution to some set of conditions that it must satisfy? These are somewhat different questions, and there was a shift from the first question, which is always appropriate, let's construct the best theory, to the second question, does the thing that we are studying have a certain kind of optimal character? That wasn't clear at the time. Most of these things become clear in retrospect. Maybe in doing research, you can only understand what you were doing later. First, you do it, and later, if you are lucky, you understand what you were trying to do, and these questions become sort of clarified through time. Now you have reached a certain level of understanding. Five years from now, you look at these things differently. So uh, they ask again. You have okay. already addressed the next question, which is about the distinction between uh, methodological minimalism and the substantive thesis. But let us go through the points since you might want to add something. The minimalist program involves methodological assumptions which are, by and large, common to the method of post-Galilean natural sciences, what is sometimes called the Galilean style. Even more generally, some such assumptions are common to human rational inquiry. Occam's razor, minimizing apparatus, search for symmetry and elegance, etc. But on top of that, there seems to be a substantive thesis in the nature of natural languages. What is the substantive thesis? How are methodological and substantive minimalism related? Uh, Chomsky replies, Actually, there is a lot to say about each of those topics. So take the phrase Galilean style. The phrase was used by nuclear physicist Steven Weinberg, borrowed from Husserl, you know, shout out, uh, but not just with regard to the flimsy attempt uh, to improve theories. Uh, sorry, not just with regard to the attempt to improve theories. I don't know. I guess I heard flimsy from later on. Mm -hmm. He was referring to the fact that physicists give a higher degree of reality to the mathematical models of the universe they construct than to the, quote, ordinary world of sensation. What was striking about, so, like, you know, they give more reality to their, like, abstractions to, like, phenomena. What was striking mm -hmm. about Galileo what, and was considered very offensive at the time was that he dismissed a lot of data. He was willing to say, look, if the data refute the theory, the data are probably wrong. And the data that he threw out were not minor. For example, he was defending the Copernican thesis, but he was unable to explain why bodies didn't fly off the Earth. If the Earth is rotating, why isn't everything flying off into space? Also, if you look through a Galilean telescope, you don't really see the four moons of Jupiter. You see some horrible mess, and you have to be willing to be rather charitable to agree that you are seeing the four moons. He was subjected to considerable criticism at the time in a sort of data-oriented period, which happens to be our period for just about every field except for the core natural sciences. We're familiar with the same criticism in linguistics. I remember the first talk I gave at Harvard, just to bring in a personal example. Uh, it was in the mid-1950s. I was a graduate student. I was talking about something related to generative grammar. The main Harvard professor, Joshua Watmoch, 
a rather pompous character, got up, interrupted after 10 minutes or so, how would you handle, and then mentioned some obscure fact in Latin. I said I didn't know and tried to go on, but we got diverted, and that's what we talked about for the rest of the time. You know, that's very typical, and that's what science had to face in its early stages and still has to face. But the Galilean style, what Steve Weinberg was referring to, is the recognition that it is the abstract systems that you are constructing that really are the truth. The array of phenomena are some distortion of the truth because of, some too, of too many factors, all sorts of things. And so it often makes good sense to disregard phenomena and search for principles that really seem to give some deep insight into why some of them are that way, recognizing that there are others that you can't pay attention to. Physicists, for example, even today can't explain in detail how water flows out of the faucet. Is that true? I don't know if that, like, uh, what? what? Uh, inviting all physicists on the podcast to explain how water yeah. flows out of the faucet. Take the Chomsky challenge. Um, uh, hydraulics uh, isn't real? You can't do like, it. Uh, okay. Well, it might be real, but they can't explain how. Uh, okay. I don't know. Uh, right. It seems I'll like it would be judgment, pretty but... easy to explain, but I don't know. Uh, yeah. I feel like I could kind of explain it, but anyway. Uh, the structure of yeah. helium or other things that seem too complicated. Physics is in a situation in which something like 90% of the matter of the universe is what is called dark matter. It's called dark because they don't know what it is. They can't find it. But it has to be there or the physical laws don't work. So people happily go on with the assumption that we're somehow missing 90% of the matter of the universe. That's by now considered normal, but in Galileo's time it was considered outrageous. And the Galilean style referred to that major change in the way of looking at the world. You're trying to understand how it works, not just describe a lot of phenomena, and that's quite a shift. So this is interesting because this is almost kind of like a this is also kind of a Foucauldian thing where he's admitting that like the models that one have uh, mm -hmm. sort of uh, shape the like uh, or take precedence over any kind of data or whatever. And it's not mm -hmm. just a matter of like empirically assessing, you know, the facts on the ground. But, uh, you know, what you're... Uh, it's about the first you know, principles you bring to, yeah, like, you know, the situation. Yeah, the first principles you bring. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, or your Very model. Ivy or your, your kind of thing. Your presumption that, you know, language is perfect. Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, like, honestly, like, uh, that, I think, that like, what really he's saying is very much in a... What he's saying is very much in alignment with uh, Islam in many respects. So I think he has a, g a good point uh, a lot of the time. But... Uh, it's very interesting in light of who Chomsky is. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe that's why Sam Harris was so offended by him because he could tell he was a sleeper mm. agent trying to promote, you know, uh, the idea of the uncreated, uncreated Quran. Uh, There's some crypto religious you know, like, uh, thinking going on, but behind there all definitely these is some crypto religious thinking going on. Uh, yeah, but anyway, yeah. But so he, the idea of yeah. language being perfect. I mean, uh, putting the the Quran aside, uh, you know, like, that yeah. seems like a weird uh, obsession of uh, to have uh, trying to can we make language perfect? It seems like such like a technocratic kind of a one dimension like what it did i don't know did you explain elsewhere is there a particular linguistic uh, terminology dimension to the word perfect or does he just mean like, like that's what actually does he mean the by question perfect? they ask next oh, like okay. uh you know they do ask like you know uh what does it mean by per what do you mean by yeah. perfect um i guess i could yeah there was uh, there's one interesting part in what he says in the earlier response 
which I think is interesting, kind of related uh, to what we're saying. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and this I think actually had kind of uh, relates to the, the question of perfect. It's about like you know, well designed for use, kind of is is what uh, optimized. He's talking about. So like, he says like fully yeah. optimized. Okay. Right. Yeah. Uh, I'm not a know, computer, um, Chomps. Gnome. I'm not a fucking computer. Uh, sorry. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> I feel so, like he's saying yeah. we're we're just computers that need to be optimized. Less I don't CPUs, like it. Um, yeah, we're just what's yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so a separate question is: given some organism or entity, anything you're trying to study the solar system a bee whatever it may be how good a theory can i construct for it he you know and you try to construct the best theory you can using the galilean newtonian style not being distracted by phenomena that seem to interfere with the explanatory force of a theory recognizing that the world is not in accord with common sense intuition and so on so that's great to me because it's just like you know if the what you know appearances contradict what the theory that appeals to you just like get rid of it which is just, <laughs> i i like that you know i like that all right so okay, these are okay. quite different tasks the first one is asking how well designed the system is and that's a new question in the minimalist program of course quote design is a metaphor we know it's not design nobody's confused about that okay well i actually am a little bit confused because mm -hmm. like you know, uh, if it's optimally, if it's perfect and it's optimally yeah. designed or whatever, like, you know, how can you then say it's not designed? Yeah, like, it's clearly, I mean, like, uh, probably. If we're born with it pre-installed, you know, like uh, uh, Yeah, a I mean, everything that he's saying, like, insofar as it's true, it's because of God, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But yeah. like, you know, uh, but he's not saying it's God. He's saying it's no, just, he's not. He's not. Uh, just, yeah. It, like, it is what it and is. I do, you know, I think that a lot of the time, you know, science does work this way. Many other things work this way. Philosophy, sometimes, you know, can work this way. Like a theology certainly can work this way. I mm -hmm. think that more often than not, it is a matter of like, you know, making the, the facts conform to uh to the hunch what that you, you have what you think yeah or like you get a you know, hunch model. and p hacking have, uh p hacking uh oh that's right yeah yeah right um yeah a whole other level of p hacking mm -hmm. but yeah they do ask him uh what uh perfection is so mm -hmm. he says uh let's distinguish two questions um one, what do we mean by optimality? Few rules is better than more rules. Less memory used in computation is better than more memory used. Yeah, so he's all about Tawheed. You know, he wants to unify. Anyway, there are some <laughs> not precise general ideas about what optimality is. The second question is, what conditions is the system supposed to meet? I think that you're, what you're raising has to do with the question, uh, and you're absolutely right. There can be various points of view. If you take a standard functionalist point of view, you would ask, is the system designed for its use? So is it going to be well designed for the uses to which people put it? And the answer there is apparently not. So this system does not seem to be all that well designed for use for the kind of reasons you mentioned. Ambiguities, garden paths, lots of expressions that are unintelligible, expressions that are perfectly intelligible but not well formed. In some sense, the system is not well designed for use, at least not perfectly designed for use. But it has to be designed well enough to get by. That's all that we discover. It's designed for well enough to get by. That raises the question. Can we find other conditions such that language is well-designed, optimal for those conditions? So it's like, well, you know, it's not perfect by a functionalist uh, standard of, of perfection because it's not best design thing for use because uh, there's all sorts of confusion yeah. and ambiguities yeah, in language. Of course. So let's apply a different standard to try to find out how language is perfect. Um, you know, uh, so that's out. Like, so that standard doesn't sell. But is there another way that language might be perfect? So this uh, is like such like so Theranosy. Like you. Yeah. Can, like, you yeah. Know, but, no, this is like. Um, this is yeah. it, ironically it's probably like the book that he probably invokes all the time is like the chilling you know uh, prophecy of the future it's like very Orwellian 
person uh, to be like, let's like find an optimized form of language that everyone can use that is more efficient. And it's like, um, that seems to be what he's kind of getting at, right? Well, he's not. Well, he's saying that there already is like, uh, you know, yes. or that he's saying that language already is optimized like that. Uh, you know, it is perfect. Um, it's just a question okay. of like how then, it can be conceived that way. Oh, yeah. Well, he, so he does think language is perfect already, but he just listed off all these, uh, you know, externalities and flaws well, but and ambiguities. Yeah, yes, yes. But that's only by the idea of that, you know, it's the question is, if we assume that language is perfect or we're asking the question, can language be perfect? Then we're like, OK, well, what does it mean to be perfect? Yes. Well, we could say that it means best design for its use. Well, okay. that's probably not true of language. So therefore, it's that's not what perfect is. We're not using the functionalist idea. So then okay. he says, we ask another question. Is it well designed for interaction with the systems that are internal to the mind? It's quite a different question because maybe the whole architecture of the mind is not well designed for use. Let me see if I can make an analogy. Take some other organ of the body, say the liver. You may discover that the liver is badly designed for life in Italy because people drink too much wine and get all sorts of diseases of the liver. Therefore, the liver wasn't well designed for function. On the other hand, the liver might be beautifully designed for interaction with the circulatory system and the kidney and so on. And those are just different things. From the point of view of selection, natural selection, things must be well designed, at least moderately well designed for use, well designed enough so that organisms can reproduce and so on. But a totally separate question is, forgetting the use to which the object is put, is it well designed from the perspective of internal structure? That's a different kind of question and actually a new one. The natural approach has always been, is it well designed for use, understood typically as used for communication? I think that's the wrong question. The use of language for communication might turn out to be a kind of epiphenomenon. That is really a striking mm -hmm. statement. What? The use of language of communication is an epiphenomenon, meaning like that's just ancillary to like, you know. Uh, to the real purpose says, of language. I mean, the system or like, you know, uh, whether it even has a purpose at all. Maybe its purpose is just to be beautiful. I don't know. Yeah, but let me just wow. read on. I mean, the system developed however it did. We really don't know. And then we can ask. How do people use it? It might turn out that it is not optimal for some of the ways in which we want to use it. If you want to make sure that we never misunderstand one another, for that purpose, language is not well designed because you have such properties as ambiguity. If we want to have the property that things that we usually would like to say come out short and simple, well, probably doesn't have that proper property. A lot of things uh, we would like to say may ver be very hard to express, like everything uh, involving his theory, but anyway, uh, maybe <laughs> impossible to express. You often find that you can't express simple intentions and feelings that you would like to convey to somebody. A lot of personal interactions collapse because of things like that in ordinary life. So the system is not well designed in many functional respects. But there's a totally separate question. Is it well designed with regard to internal systems with which it must interact? That's a different perspective and a new question. And that's the question the minimalist program tries to answer. Uh, the way I would like to think of it now is that the system is essentially inserted into already existing external systems, external to the language faculty, internal to the mind. So there's a sensory motor system which is there, independently of language. Maybe it is somewhat modified because of the presence of language, but in essence, it is there independently of language. The bones of the middle ear don't change because of language. There is some kind of system of thought, conception, intention, and so on, which is sort of sitting there. That includes what were traditionally called common notions or innate ideas. Perhaps also analysis in terms of what is called folk psychology, interpreting people's actions in terms of belief and desire, recognizing things in the world and how they move, and so on. Well, that's presumably not entirely dependent on language, probably. Non-human primates have something like that, and perhaps even the capacity of attributing minds to their organisms, a question currently much debated. The, quest the language faculty has to interact with those systems, otherwise it's not usable at all. So we may ask, 
is it well designed for the interaction with those systems? Then you get a different set of conditions. And in fact, the only condition that emerges clearly is that given that the language is essentially an information system, the information it stores must be accessible to those systems. That's the only condition. We can ask whether a language is well designed to meet the condition of accessibility to the system in which it is embedded. Is the information it provides legible to those systems? It is like asking, is the liver accessible to the other systems with which it interacts? Is the liver, if the liver produced something not bile, but something else that the rest of the body couldn't make any use of, it wouldn't be any good. And that's a very different question than whether the liver is well designed for life in a wine drinking culture. A very different question. Uh, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm triggered. Like, uh, this um, is all sus. This is all fucking sus. I don't trust it for a second. I feel like he is doing another insight role, and he's laying the groundwork for us to get chips in our brains, like via Elon <laughs> Musk, so that we can bypass the imperfect, like, non-optimized uh, faculty of language, and then just, like, uh, speak in some kind of fake, weird, mediated uh, telepathy with one another that can be, like, monetized by Facebook. No, uh, um, I don't. <laughs> I feel I don't, like, I don't like well, it. I feel like Chomsky does that. Like, I think that like w- once like he established the idea that like the human brain is a computer, like or you know he his contribution to that is a contribution to to what you're describing. But what he's doing here, I feel like, is almost more sophistical than that. Where he's not saying like he needs to change the facts of forced language to be perfect. Like he just needs to change because the facts are irrelevant; they can be discarded, and like a you know the theory is all that matters. So it just needs to be theoretically consistent that like language can can be perfect in some way. Although it's weird because he kind of is contradicting himself in a way where he's saying like, you know, uh, there are aspects of language like you know the data says language isn't perfect for use because like you know we can't express ourselves perfectly at all times. But you know, can't you just throw out that data and just say that it is? I don't know, but. Uh, he's uh, really, he really wasn't lying when he said like he was reaching for his gun when he hears like the word dialectical materialism because he really seems to like not dialectic even in general, be aware. Any kind of I know dialectics in general, uh, but also the materialism part of like really uh, going into like idealistic uh, idealistic territory there and like utopian territory of like I don't know to come out and say that like I mean I get like maybe there's there's certain interesting uh, insights to be gleaned from saying that you know, uh, projecting your theory or hypothesis onto a thing in order to, like, conform reality to it. I'm not, like, dismissing that out of hand, but I don't know. It's, like, an academic or whatever. Well, that's, like, how all knowledge actually works, I think. Uh, mm, yeah, or like, you know, yeah. Very, you know. But I feel like he's part, also giving yeah. himself, like, a very, like, easy out to actually having to explain like what I don't know what he's really getting at or after and that he's just asking all these questions that even just asking the question of like could there you know is like talking to each other the best thing I feel like it's opening the door to creepy possibilities of like uh, the technological society swooping in like Silicon Valley swooping in and offering like a pseudo yeah, well, replacement for that. How, like these theories could be like instrumentalized in like that type of way or like how like they could inspire like the thinking that it encourages basically like, you know, the other approach to language is like kind of like an ethnographic or anthropological approach, you know, both which has mm-hmm. like, you know, their own attendant problems like, you know, disciplines of anthropology and uh, ethnography are like super fraught uh, and definitely problematic in many ways. Yeah. But like, they like you know they're basically those are the the debased social sciences that Chomsky would say like you know that's all nonsense like social sciences aren't real sciences 
Chomsky basically doesn't like believe in society when it comes to language, you know, like he like there is all no about society. like what's internal to the mind, right? Like yeah. that's like the whole thing. Like, you know, uh, it's all about like these internal systems of the eye language, which are separate from like closed off completely from the external world. And like that might apply well to computers, but like maybe not to, to human beings, you know? Uh, yeah, so, it's like uh, he, yeah, even listing very, all like, the flaws yeah. with language. I'm like, you're listing every beautiful, like profound thing about language as like a biotechnology yeah, like that like we've developed. Yeah, ambiguity. Yeah, actually, yeah. you know, like, yeah, I mean, that's like, the thing. Like, like, he, like, he doesn't like, care about language. <laughs> he doesn't care about like the the things yeah. language is actually used for he just like looks at it just like like he's dissecting it on like an operating table like just like what is this thing like it is a computer I it's also, like he's taking apart a computer but i don't know i also question like his idea of like perfection or like i guess he doesn't really have like a concrete idea of perfection like i guess it's like just perfectly interact with like you know the things in our mind in which case like you know the only way to assess that question is through the mind or so, you know, so I would th like, you know, how could you possibly answer it? I like, you know, to say like, you can only think in language real, like, you know, uh, we can't exactly gonna, get outside I can't of it. Think, at least I can't think without language. I can't formulate yeah. an answer that question without recoursing to my native language of English. Yes. So like, I don't see how you could determine whether language is perfectly designed to interact with the internal structures of the mind, like, because, like, a uh, kind of language can't accuse itself from that, you know, but, like, I mean, yeah, like, things are, like, uh, it's kind of like a, you know, the best of all possible worlds, like, uh, you know, like, uh, if you want to... Uh, become Muslim Chomsky. I mean, he has the beard now. He does have the beard. He should just yeah. do it. That's what, I oh. mean, it's, you know, on his he should, he should either convert Shahada. or, like, become, like, just, like, do a 180 and become a Marxist because he does have a very Marxian beard now. But he should really just, like, pick something and go with it because what's working, uh, what he's working with now is pretty uh pretty weak tea right. i, I guess say. we're gonna have to battle over the soul of chomsky here we I'm will gonna, we will this is the uh, he's gonna hate it him. it's gonna be a dialectic he's, he's gonna yeah, despise he's gonna reach for his gun yeah. but we're gonna disarm him um yeah well the thing is chomsky's like views on anything have not changed since he was 12 like <laughs> they really uh, haven't so they really really like, haven't and actually you know, i noticed uh just as an aside like i watched him on a few I think he was on like like the the crystal ball and like Kyle Kulinski uh, podcast. He was on the Jacobin like podcast, and he was on a couple other ones as well. Uh, just in the last couple months, and I I caught him kind of like it's almost like he was reading from a script. I'm sure it's something that he's memorized and like it's in his head, not like, you know, somebody mm -hmm. gave it to him. But he basically, they would all come on, they would like kiss his ring and tell him how obsessed they were with him when they were teenagers and what a great honor, St. Chomsky, please like shower your wisdom upon us. And uh, then he's like, peace be upon you. Uh, I'm gonna tell you about how voting for Joe Biden was necessary and how like, you know, things are bad. It's a, but the, like even the examples, the anecdotes he was bringing up, because Everyone is asking like the same questions, like where does the left go from here, Professor Chomsky? You know, and he had like the exact same canned answers. Uh, he kept bringing up this one guy from, and I mean, okay, he's ninety-one, but he seems pretty sharp. I, I don't want to just like attribute it to like, oh, he's old and he kind of doesn't know what he's saying. He seems like he's still all there, 
but it's like it doesn't matter it's still the same Chomsky routine and now he it's like for every period he kind of decides what like his talking points are going to be and then he just repeats them to like reverent hosts on alternative media outlets who just like sit there and like stroke their chin and go mm, so profound and it's like very like you know it's like on autopilot and uh it's uh it's just but like you know it's still it's still uh people still pay attention to it so you know and they think they're getting something there's a way he has about him that and like his his you know his very steady cadence uh you know and some yes. level of calm certainty about everything you That's know and he always has a little like yeah. anecdote or a little twisty kind of comment um and things like that but he was like repeating the same exact anecdotes on like three different kind of podcasts and like it was almost yeah. like listening to the exact identical interview there was like no variation nobody felt comfortable like like pushing back on anything he said or just in the sake of conversation, you know, um, there, there's like, I, because I think everybody knows now that he gets so, he gets so nasty and kind of, uh, and then he'll, he'll stop interacting with you. Like he won't go on your show. He won't answer your emails. You know, he'll tell everybody you're an asshole. Like, you know, he basically, he, he won't debate in like a public format basically. Um, you know, he just kind of wants to hang out with like his stands, um, which I guess mm-hmm. is his right. But uh, it definitely, like, I think that the limits of like his analysis are have really like you really see it kind of blatantly today. Whereas maybe in like the early two thousands, it felt like you know he still had things to contribute to talking about you know the Bush administration and you know U.S. aggression and and things like that. I feel like he doesn't even really bring up the things he used to bring up in some regards. Uh, he would talk about certain like CIA atrocities and U.S. military atrocities, but it always was from a very specific kind of moralist, like libertarian perspective that kind of used some of the language of like radical left wing types of people but at the end of the day always you know he would like quote like the supreme court or like the bill of rights like there were he always had that crossover appeal he could get some npr liberals kind of like chomsky pilled right because like he would in a almost a kind of like like sorkin adjacent slightly sorkin adjacent way like appeal to the better angels of our traditions and our democratic values that were enshrined by the founders and like who of course were very imperfect and were slaveholders but they enshrined some great libertarian yeah. principles uh, you know right. like and so that can kind of like make people feel like i can be a radical but i don't necessarily have to confront all of the things uh, that America maybe is like guilty of um, or imagine something that feels, quote, authoritarian because that's tyranny, according to Chomsky. And you can always feel very like, comfortable that, you know, it's just like it's it's humming beneath the surface that in a lot of cases, like he's hostile to the same foreign powers uh, and movements that like the United States government and like even the right wing of the United States government. It's like the classic kind of like Trotsky dynamic, even though he was never a Trotskyist of, you know, there, there is a like there's a there's an inevitable subtle enemy of the enemy of my friend, you know, enemy of my enemy is my friend yeah. uh, kind of thing going on. And that 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 could lead into uh, uh, Chomsky's relationship, which I think is a really uh, revealing an important thing about his whole like career is his relationship with so-called conspiracy theories. Crowd, 
soft revolution. Coronavirus is serious enough, but it's worth recalling that there's a much greater horror approaching. We are racing to the edge of disaster, far worse than anything that's happened in human history. There are two threats that we're facing. One is the growing threat of nuclear war, which uh, has exacerbated conspiracy theories um the noam chomsky in the compatible left essay uh goes kind of deeper into this and places chomsky in the kind of radical left context uh and uh interesting things emerge um from that so uh lorenzo writes that he he talks about how Oglesby's The Yankee and Cowboy War, the subtitle to it is Conspiracies from Dallas and Beyond. The book is a thoroughly researched and compellingly argued analysis of America's main, uh, two main ruling class power blocks, what he terms the Yankees of the Eastern Establishment and the newer, more petty bourgeois cowboys of the South and some belt economies. Like hundreds of other researchers, Oglesby believed that a coalition of reactionary interests orchestrated a coup in Dealey Plaza, and he posits numerous major events in then-recent history as battles in this war between the ruling blocs. At that point in time, there was no overwhelming stigma associated with what is today termed conspiracy theorism because there was so much evidence of covert action. Author Peter Dare Scott uses the term deep politics or parapolitics uh, to describe the political forces that act under the surface of the everyday public political procedures. Uh, Ogle, Oglesby elaborates, quote, we see the expressions and symptoms of clandestine America in a dozen places now. The FBI's COINTELPRO scheme, the CIA's Operation Chaos, the Pentagon's Operation Garden Plot, the large-scale and generally successful attempts to destroy legitimate and essential dissent in which all the intelligence agencies participated, a campaign whose full scope and fury are still not revealed. We see it in the ruthlessness and indifference to, to the world as well as, or, uh, yeah, to world as well as national opinion with which the CIA contracted its skills out to ITT to destroy democracy's last little chance in Chile. We see it as well, as this book argues, in the crime and cover-up of Dealey Plaza, the crime and cover-up of Watergate. Clandestinism is not the usage of a handful of rogues. It is a formalized practice of an entire class in which a thousand hands spontaneously join. Conspiracy is the normal continuation of normal politics by normal means. In 1991, there was a surge of interest in the JFK assassination due to Oliver Stone's film JFK. A couple of years later, Chomsky responded with the strange statement that, quote, <clears throat> The left has just been torn to shreds because they see CIA conspiracies, secret governments behind the Kennedy assassination. This kind of stuff has just wiped out a large part of the left. 
As is the case when he's counseling compliance, Chomsky provides no evidence to support this claim. The idea that theory is not accepted by the mainstream media should be ignored is a recurrent theme with America's greatest dissident. But during the 1960s and 70s, plenty of radicals and left liberals engaged in good research and analysis of covert action and weren't afraid to propose conclusions based on the evidence. He mentions Dalton Trumbo's uh, uh, film uh, Executive Action from 1973, which describes a plot uh, of uh, to basically kill JFK. Uh, May Brussel, the era's most prominent left liberal anti-fascist conspiracy researcher, said that the analysis of the Kennedy assassination had a major effect on opening up the field of radical analysis. Quote, if Kennedy's assassination had one purpose, it may have been to open up the field of muckraking and exposing, because from the time of World War I up through Kennedy's death, so many, many crimes and murders were done and covered up. But this might have been the straw that broke the camel's back. Uh, alternative theories about the Kennedy assassination were so common the CIA invented the conspiracy theory slur in 1967 in document number 1035-960, which proposed using friendly elite contacts and propaganda assets, their words, in the media to promote the idea that, quote, charges of the critics are without serious foundation and that further speculative discussion only plays into the hands of the opposition. Point out also that parts of the conspiracy talk appear to be deliberately generated by communist propagandists urge them to use their influence to discourage unfounded and irresponsible speculation. He notes, it's all very similar language to that used by Cass Sunstein in his 2008 article on combating conspiracy theories. Uh, I guess Noam Chomsky basically, you know, he just goes through like Dick Gregory, Red Stockings, The Berkeley Barb, uh, Paul Krasner's The Realist, May Brussel, uh, Phil Agee's Covert Action Information Bulletin, all of these places basically uh, investigated and talked about the JFK assassination. And Chomsky even wrote for Covert Action Information Bulletin, I think, in the uh, 1990s. But Noam Chomsky does not explain why, if conspiracy theories had such a deleterious effect on the left, the CIA went to such great lengths to stigmatize them. Despite the fact that he's beaten the conspiracy theory drums for decades, Chomsky occasionally shows that he really does understand that conspiracies are an essential part of ruling class praxis. He did so in 2017 when he blamed Donald Trump for masterminding false flag terrorist attacks that hadn't even happened. <laughs> uh, and he notes, uh, if it's counterproductive to theorize about real events, surely it's infinitely more foolish to peddle conspiracy theories about imaginary things, as Chomsky did here. Uh, many more uh, ideas that Chomsky would help turn into common knowledge would have looked and sounded very strange to those engaged in the liberation struggles of that era and yeah it basically just keeps going on and on and so there's another thing i found with a few quotes of like what did chomsky actually say about the jfk assassination and i think this is really fascinating because this is where he he's been pretty consistent with this throughout his career. I'll just read this here from uh, 22 November 1963.org.uk. Noam Chomsky is famously unconcerned about the JFK assassination and is often accused of failing to recognize the, important, uh, the importance of the event. A JFK assassination researcher, Raymond Marcus, attempted in 1969 to get a number of well-known activist academics, including Chomsky and Howard Zinn, interested in the assassination. And he writes in his book, I had assembled a portfolio of evidence, primarily photographic, that I could present briefly but adequately in 30 to 60 minutes. I first met with Noam Chomsky. Soon after our discussions began, he asked his secretary to cancel his remaining appointments for the day. The scheduled one-hour meeting stretched to three to four hours. Chomsky showed great interest in the material. We mutually agreed to a follow-up session later in the week. 
Chomsky indicated he was very interested, but would not decide before uh, giving the matter much careful consideration. It was clear that what Chomsky won't be able to decide until he returned from England was not the question of whether or not there was a conspiracy, that he had given every indication of having already decided in the affirmative, but whether or not he wished to participate actively, even to assume a leading role in the movement to reopen the case. Uh, so it says, although Chomsky appears to be aware the assassination was the result of a conspiracy, he considers it not to be a significant political event. His opinion of the JFK assassination follows from his conclusion that there was no substantial change in policy between the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. And I guess uh, Chomsky wrote this in Vain Hopes, False Dreams in Z Magazine, 1992. I mean, even if that were true, it would still be a significant political event, Right. Well, exactly, exactly. Yeah, like, uh, well, I, don't I mean, yeah, how, yeah, but but this like, is what I mean. This is what uh, he wrote in 1992 about it. Uh, he said the, the the core issue in the current Kennedy revival is the claim that JFK intended to withdraw from Vietnam, a fact suppressed by the media, and was assassinated for that reason. It is prominently charged. Some allege further that Kennedy was intent on destroying the CIA, dismantling the military-industrial complex, ending the Cold War, and opening an era of development and freedom for Latin America. America, among other forms of class treachery that led to his downfall. There is a shared belief across the spectrum that history changed course dramatically when Kennedy was assassinated in November 63, an event that casts a grim shadow over all that followed. Uh, and I guess he, the article goes on to su- uh, providing evidence to support his interpretation, a topic he covered in his book Rethinking Camelot, JFK, then the Vietnam War, and U.S. political culture. He, yeah, basically the, the main area is that he finds no evidence of the significant political changes which surely would have happened had the assassination been the result of a high-level conspiracy. Because the assassination was not the result of a high-level conspiracy, it is not of any real importance. I think... Um, it looks like Michael Parenti got in a fight with Noam Chomsky on a message board <laughs> like 20 uh, wow, years on ago. Wow, a message board. All right. Uh, uh, oh, well, yeah. I mean, he wrote the JFK assassination defending the gangster state. Um, mm-hmm. I guess uh, Chomsky was asked about... Oh, I'm sorry. Maybe they didn't fight, but Chomsky was asked about Parenti's book in an online discussion, and he wrote this. Oh, God. Uh, it's long, so I won't do the voice fully, but, you know, I, I know yeah, very I little. Know. It's, it's tough, but uh, I know very little. Actually, it's kind of easy. Uh, I know very little <laughs> about the assassination. The only thing I've written about it is that the claim that it was a high-level conspiracy with policy significance is implausible to a quite extraordinary degree. History isn't physics, and even in physics, nothing is really proven. But the evidence against this claim is overwhelming from every testable point of view, remarkably so for a historical event. Given that conclusion, which I think is very well founded, that I've written about a lot, I have no further interest in the assassination, and while I've read a few of the books out of curiosity, I haven't given the matter any attention and have no opinion about how or why JFK was killed. People shouldn't be killed, whether they are presidents or kids in the urban slums. I know of no reason to suppose that one should have more interest in the JFK assassination than lots of killings not far from the White House. One cannot adopt a left-wing perspective or any other perspective on an issue that one has no interest in and nothing to say about. There is no left-wing or right-wing perspective. The evidence is so overwhelming that questions of interpretation hardly arise. If someone can show that they do, I'll gladly look. 
But what I've looked at on this question, for example, various elaborate theories about JFK's alleged intentions on Vietnam or policy changes resulting from his death or similar things about Cuba, the Cold War, etc., simply does not begin to withstand rational inquiry. That's true even of work by personal friends who are serious scholars on other issues, but who become so irrational on this issue, they cannot even read the words that are before their eyes, sometimes in the most remarkable ways. As for whether power elites perceive JFK to be a threat to the status quo, the statement is close to meaningless. If someone can produce some coherent version of the statement and then some evidence for that version, I'll look at it. I don't know Parenti's work well, but most of what I've read is quite good and useful, except on this topic. That's not unique to him. The JFK assassination has engendered a kind of cult-like reaction in ordinary, ordinarily rational people act in what seemed to me very strange ways. <clears throat> there you go. So <laughs> there you go. There you go. Not totally meaningless. Doesn't matter. Who cares? Uh, um, yeah. And yeah, this is in a fight with Michael Parenti. Uh, well, uh, kind of somebody asking him to like, what do you think about Parenti's book? And that was his response mm-hmm. to it. Uh, so he, you know, said like, oh, I think Michael Parenti's work, uh, uh, some of it is good and useful, but not on this topic. Uh, he's delusional like everybody else that I know who thinks there was an, a conspiracy. Hmm. Yeah, so right. he just thinks it's like a big distraction. Who cares? It doesn't matter. He's really dismissive of it. He said in 2003 that there's just a huge amount of frittering away of energy on real absurdities. There are parts of the country, like California, where incredible amounts of energy go into things like trying to figure out wh- exactly which mafia figure might have been involved in killing John F. Kennedy or something, as if anybody should care. The energy and passion that goes into things like that is really extraordinary. It's very self-destructive. Like, dude, what the... Well, for, first of all, guilty is charged. Uh, um, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, we are sitting out here in California trying to figure out which mafia figure. Jesus. You know, it's just like that kind of like snide. And he's really like he's really in sync with the CIA's program that uh, um, that Lorenzo wrote down of just like mock them, like dismiss it, like tell people that. I mean, obviously, he's not going to well, say you're a communist. Idea, but I feel like the mocking of it, like, you know, I feel like he's he's very intelligent, uh, you know, so I feel like he should be able to you would think he would be able to marshal like an explanation for like why it wasn't a conspiracy and that, it, you know, uh, like, or at least to maybe like attack the idea, but instead of just be, instead of just being like, it doesn't matter, which seems crazy to say that it's irrelevant. Yeah. If, like the CIA killed a U.S. president. Yeah. A sitting U.S. president and then framed some like unstable communist guy who also was like working for the government. Uh, you know, yeah, like there's so many levels of that of like, like it, the, the extent yeah. to which they went to cover it up alone. Like, like truly, like if it didn't matter as much as he's saying it didn't matter, like why would they do such an elaborate How thing? How can you say that it it doesn't matter if it's true? Yeah. I mean, uh, well, because for him... Kennedy would have done every single thing that LBJ did, including like, like you know, escalate the war in Vietnam and everything else. So it literally all would have gone down the exact same way, which there is not that that is not an open and shut political case at all. If anything, that's kind of minority view that, you okay, know, he well did have like executive orders. It doesn't and stuff. matter if the you know, if like uh, like 
holographic planes like flown by like Alistair Crowley like flew into the <laughs> yeah. towers like no nothing ontologically like, to, to, to examine there yeah, you know like, nothing you know, to re-examine like George Bush did you know the Bush administration did everything that they you know like they got everything that they wanted out of it whether it was like you know the official explanation or like literally like you know uh, the face of Satan in the clouds like created a yeah. holographic plane um like, well, but it wouldn't surprise would matter. Yeah. That would yeah. still matter. It like, absolutely matters. Like, it absolutely you know, matters. Uh, it would be relevant. Like, for instance, it would be relevant, like, in terms of the list of, like, war crimes or, like, crimes against humanity committed by the people involved. Like, yeah, um, like, I mean, as as Lorenzo quoted, uh, I don't know who this person is. Yeah, uh, I mean, it would Al be Shemansky. a indictment of, like, it would, be, it, it would be a good, like, little feather to have in your cap, like, in terms of, like, your career of like a, as a polemicist against like the cia and stuff uh-huh, like to exactly to say, like, if you're really against they them played a hand in, like yeah you'd think like that would at least you know you'd at least it would at least matter whether or not it was true maybe you don't believe it like that's one thing like and in which case like i would expect you to be able to come up with some kind of argument why not but yeah like or at least to say something like you know oh it's it's not provable, but, like, you know, for some other reason, like, these theories, like, you know, uh, like, there's no reason to assume that it was. like so. There's a should, more modulated way you like could that. make this argument, but he yeah, goes hard well, against it. Like, and, and just well, the idea of... He goes of, hard yeah. on the idea that, like, it's irrelevant, which is really... Like, he's trying to avoid taking sides, like, yeah. know, throughout his entire life, when he yeah. tried to avoid taking sides between the military-industrial complex and, like, being <laughs> a radical anarchist. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. But the a result is that he seems, like, more insane than, like, if he just straight up said, like, no, I don't think that there was a conspiracy. He's got to, uh, like, twist himself up like a magic bullet's trajectory, basically, to, like, come out sounding like he's making sense and not kind of, like, hiding something or just, like, being a coward. Yeah, just and say something. Like, probably not or probably yeah. Or, like, you know, maybe. I don't know. Like, don't, like what do you mean? Doesn't matter. Uh, uh, it's it's really bizarre and uh yeah, elsewhere even maybe yeah. would be a better like answer like uh i don't know but uh yeah uh, and it's also kind of i guess um, it kind of does say maybe but also like that who cares which is like not necessary i don't know yeah um, i it, it's a uh, yeah, he wrote, I mean, he wrote basically his whole book, Rethinking Camelot, like attacking the idea that Kennedy was intending to pull out of Vietnam. Like, uh, uh, I mean, uh, well, was he planning to pull out of Vietnam? Because I well, feel like, I mean, you know, he might be right about that. Uh, like, you know, that he wasn't. I mean, it, it does attest to his obsession with Kennedy, I guess. But I don't know. Like, Kennedy was kind of maybe he was trying to pull out of Vietnam. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I, I think um, also kind of like. Uh, yeah well here here's here's a a tiny passage from that book that about his uh his his some summary of his vietnam and kennedy feelings that is uh um he says like really the book is not about the kennedy assassination what it's about is the build-up to the war in vietnam which we now know a lot about because of recent documentation and like all your friends who were planning it uh and it shows very clearly what was going on kennedy just launched an attack against south vietnam and hadn't the slightest intent of ending it short of victory 
also interesting, at least I thought it was interesting, in the last chapter I went through the accounts that had been given in that period, and it's very striking to see. There were a lot of memoirs written at the time by people like Arthur Schlesinger and others, and all of these memoirs completely revised their account after the Tet Offensive. The Tet Offensive in January of 1968, that made the war unpopular. American corporate elites decided at that point that it just wasn't worth it, it was too costly, let's pull out. So at that time, everyone became an opponent of the war because the orders from on high that you were supposed to be opposed to it. And after that, every single memoirist radically changed their story about what had happened. They all concocted the story that their hero, John F. Kennedy, was really planning to pull out of this unpopular war before he was killed, and then Johnson changed it. If you look at the earlier memoirs, not a hint, I mean literally. Like Schlesinger in his 940-page book has less about the withdrawal than the New York Times did. And it's not any new information came along. It didn't. The new information that came along just showed more that he had no intention of withdrawing. But the war became unpopular, therefore people had to rewrite the story, and they did it in the most amazing way. I mean, this is the kind of thing you might have found in Stalinist Russia, and it happened right here in a yeah. free country. Ugh. Wow. <laughs> Just, what the fuck? Oh my god, like, there's so much... Like, first of all, there I mean, absolutely has been, yeah. Uh, th- yeah, yeah, but there has been shit coming out, even when he wrote this in like 2003 or whatever. Like, there absolutely is our accounts of, uh, of, you know, definitely as, as far back as like, you know, the 90s or whatever, when people are getting into JFK stuff. Like, there, there's quite a number of books that like outline the evidence that he was planning on like giving up on Vietnam after he got reelected. And then Johnson like reversed it. Now I don't. I'm not saying that automatically means that like that's why they killed him, but it's certainly an interesting line of inquiry to like explore. And he just shuts it down as like, nope, absolutely not. Like, and like one guy changed what he wrote in his memoir to sound more anti-Vietnam War after the fact. But like, I don't know. Have you read every single memoir or every single testimony of somebody in the Kennedy administration, Chomsky? You know, like, oh, it's like nobody ever said anything about it. And it's like, well, you know, uh, nobody said anything about the command and control systems you were helping build. Um, Hmm. You know, like there was a lot of shit that wasn't out there. Well, this is an interesting thought experiment. Like, what if the CIA, like, assassinated Trump, like in a Klaus von Stauffenberg type operation? Because as we know, he was as bad as Hitler. Like, would that not matter or would that be good? (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, he he seemed to think that Trump was ordering false flag. Like now he became a conspiracy theorist at like 89 years old when Trump came around, but only for Trump. The rest of the power structure, it doesn't work that way, which really is such like a subtle endorsement of like the power structure that Trump is just so much worse. Like he's going to do everything that I've saying, been saying for 40 years that like uh, the real capitalist ruling class doesn't do. But, like, all of it is, like, Trump, but he's an outsider. He's not of the system. So this is just, like, an alien, a xenomorph that got on our ship that we have to expel, and maybe somebody should do something. I, I don't know if, you know, Chomsky ever it's went really so far as, like... to say, like, obviously... I, I mean, I don't know if, like, it was, you know... Uh, yeah, I don't know if it was, like, he, like, was planning on pulling out of Vietnam. I feel like, you know, I don't know what, what it was. It might have been, like, Bay of Pigs related, like, some, like, mismanagement, like, a feeling that, you know, uh, he couldn't be, like, relied upon, like, in the way that, uh, or maybe it was, like, a liability. But, like, uh, you know, I mean, or maybe it was that he was concerned about re-election or something. But either way, it's, like, very wacky to say that there's no difference between Kennedy and Johnson, 
like, but there's, like, an immense gulf between, like, you know, Trump and, and Biden, <laughs> so, you know, like, it, mm-hmm. like, I mean, yeah, like, there, I feel like there's definitely a difference between all four of those people, but, like, to say that, like, one is so huge and the other one is, like, literally non-existent. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's where he—that's where he's kind of at now. Is that uh, Biden is kind of you know an imperfect vessel. He's like a centrist or whatever, but he's also like optimistic that Biden is more pliable and like easy to push to the left I than guess. Obama was. What if the CIA assassinated Biden? What if like the the SJWs assassinated Biden to get Kamala <laughs> in? Would that matter? Uh, well, uh, I, I do see. Good? I do see here that like the one, one of the, the there's a couple conspiracies that he will entertain. I mean, he does acknowledge literally says like they ask him like what do you think about you know conspiracies operating outside official structures and uh, he says well as I look over history I don't find much of that. I mean there are some cases for instance at one point a group of Nazis thought of assassinating Hitler. Okay, so that's a conspiracy, but those are real blips on the screen. And then he also did say once that. The Martin Luther King assassination is the one case where you can imagine pretty plausible reasons why people would have wanted to kill him. And I would not be in the least bit surprised if there was, in fact, a real conspiracy behind that one, probably a high-level conspiracy. I mean, the mechanisms were there. Maybe they would have hired somebody from the mafia or something to do it. But that conspiracy theory is perfectly plausible, I think. And interestingly, I'm not aware there's been very much inquiry into it, or if there has been, I haven't heard about it. But in the case of the one everyone's excited about, Kennedy, I mean, nobody's even come up with a plausible reason. So uh, that's kind of interesting because I would have expected him kind of to like or maybe go the route of like, oh, it must have just been like a racist maniac who did it, you know, something like that. But I mean, you cannot poke enough holes in the MLK assassination official narrative like that one. Maybe he maybe that's where he had to kind of like give give an inch a little bit. I don't know if he's ever said anything about Robert Kennedy's assassination, which also hmm. is completely full of holes and yeah, uh, hand, all that stuff. Is like really, like, yeah. yeah, that's definitely not an area that Chomsky would go. I mean, oh, be, and like lest we forget, against his Rosicrucian masters, if he, mm. uh, you know, criticized the RFK official story. Yeah, um, yeah. Also, like lest we forget, Chomsky was confronted a number of times and did have things to say about 9/11. And mm-hmm. I even remember kind of like in, you know, in my um, more youthful days during the Bush administration, kind of um, like he was he was he was somebody definitely that I think, uh, you know, I shudder to think if maybe, you know, during the period I was like listening to Immortal Technique and watching Loose Change and like Zeitgeist or whatever um, that and, and like maybe seeing, you know, some Alex Jones videos here and there that then I would see like a lecture by Noam Chomsky where he dismisses the entire 9-11 truth movement and be like, oh, man, Chomsky, oh, he made a good point. Like, this stuff, maybe this stuff is wacky. And he would even, you know, go so far as to say that it basically, you know, it's like he would always attack it as like a drain on the energy of the left. Like, it was a dangerous thing to play with because it would take everybody down this, like, rabbit hole of uh, that, that, you know, A, wasn't true, and yeah. B, was a distractor from the real, you know, uh, villains and the real structural problems and blah, blah, blah. Um, which, like, it, if it is bullshit, that could be true. But, like, the things that he decided to kind of take the biggest stance on, um, 
he fell right back into his I really don't have an opinion. What does that matter? Um, I'm thinking in particular of this great video we found. It's such an outrageous claim. It's just like, uh, anyway, sorry, I'm still not over it. No, no, yeah, no. It's like reeling from the idea that it doesn't matter. Like... Anyway, whatever. Sorry. What, what were you going to say? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. no, I was just uh, bringing up his video, uh, Noam Chomsky has no opinion on Building 7. You can find it on YouTube. He has no opinion on that either. What does he have to say in particular about his lack of an opinion? What about WTC7? Yeah, anything. He just goes off about, Uh, once again, he invokes the experts and he says, you know, some people are writing things about, you know, the anomalies of that building going down. But most of the experts you notice are not doing what they do when they, you know, discover something scientific. It's absurd what he's saying that like when they discover an enormous, you know, scientific revelation like uh, that WTZ7 was like in control demoed that they, they haven't like run out and scheduled press conferences or something or like written about it in journals. And just says, well, that's evidence to him that there wasn't nothing really important has been discovered. And so, uh, yeah, he says, like, people who spend an hour on the Internet and think they know a lot of physics, but it doesn't work like that. There's a reason. He's obsessed with physics. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Despite like, not really, really being. He really wants to be a physicist. Like, that's I think what so. He wishes he was the physicist. I think he, he wishes he was like an astrophysicist or something, but yeah. he's actually like he a wishes, humanities he, professor he, doing he an insight role. He was and thinks he is Galileo. Um, Yeah, he he keeps saying, Um, like, well, like, like we should, you know, what what we should wait for is, like, what if these experts do what they do when they've, you know, uh, he says there's only been one or two minor articles that appeared in an online journal, which claim to found, you know, uh, some kind of traces of nanothermite in the building. uh, But it's not in, like, a big academic journal. It's not being, like, publicized all over the place. So... You know, that just means that it, it doesn't mean anything. It, it's insignificant. Not not important. Not important. Don't need to think about it. And uh, basically, yeah, that's like his opinion on uh, 9-11 and Building 7 is like the the vaunted experts have not gone out on like TV and like announced like QAnon style that like Bush did 9-11 and like we have the proof and like you know the uh, Navy SEALs have already arrested Dick Cheney and like they're taking him to Guantanamo right now you know like it's like almost he's he's, like saying it's like such a straw man like basically well since that ridiculous like thing that would not happen in a realistic world if if it were true that there was nanothermite in World Trade Center 7 and (laughs) detonated it to like uh, destroy all the records that like the FBI and like the Treasury Department had in there to like cover up like the Black Eagle Trust and like well an Operation Hammer any reason like that if it you know if that was a thing that was discovered sure like y- we saw that you have certain people with engineering backgrounds like become kind of advocates of like they'd go on the 9/11 Truth Circuit but like do you really think that a kind of mainstream person with like a good reputation and a good career or, like tenure or blah 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 or like a media like is gonna just go out on TV and announce like what fairy tale world do you think we live in, Chomsky? That's where yeah, I feel like his kind of anarcho optimist like kind of thing is like you know yeah like what a conspiracy is. Uh, it's just like, like not yeah like the necessity to cover it up and that's the thing that he he I mean, never he seems to mention his ideas about MLK and say like well you know how come no one ever called a press conference that MLK was assassinated by a vast conspiracy possibly involving the mob. 
Yeah, I mean, um, they did have a civil trial, as I think Lorenzo noted in there, that basically said that, you know, they did do a civil trial in the 90s and a jury ruled in the favor of Martin Luther King's family that, that he was likely uh, that was assassinated by conspiracy. I only saw minor, a few minor articles. Uh, oh, you're right. So it didn't get, uh, yeah, it, it yeah, wasn't the headline um, story. It it's almost like yeah. the media, like, uh, <laughs> underplays things that, like, threaten the prevailing power structures that own their companies, like weird right there must be a coincidence you know like it's just like that level of like will I, I believe he is too smart to just have this kind of like really huge blind spot like he wrote manufacturing yeah. consent like what yeah like what if they manufactured consent to blow the president's head off and take over the government and start the vietnam war and trick everybody into thinking it was a lone nut hmm um, you know like they manufactured consent for murdering the president by lying to everybody, uh, you know, like I don't understand where this this disconnect is like so obvious and kind of glaring. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, well, Chris Chris Knight does have a good like sort of uh, image uh, to uh, describe it, which is basically that like he has, you know, maybe he's a he's a computer with two different uh, proprietary systems, or you know, mm. uh, oh, he has an on like... off switch <laughs> in his internal. You know, like, but no, like, literally, he has, like, a, he has, like, a, a McNamara line, if you will, like, in his, uh, <laughs> you know, in his brain, where, like, he can go from, like, If you a know, sensor is tripped, it switches to the other brain. Yeah. It, well, like, literally, like, he will, like, go, he'll be, like, he could shift, like, he's a Jekyll and Hyde, like, shifting between, like, Revolutionary Chomsky and, like, MIB Chomsky. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. depending on creepy like, technocrat whether... that wants everybody to like speak in the perfect language of like a sloppy disk computer or something like uh, sloppy disk. Yeah, I feel like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, that was like literally like a malfunction that ha maybe he already is, maybe he experimented upon himself and like is like a cyborg and like half this, <laughs> half this language processing center is like you know it's like weird. Yeah, he never seemed like, a very evil, evil AI person, that but... like wants to mm -hmm. massacre people. Um, yeah, I don't know. He he kind of does seem to want to be like a computer or something like that, like in a in a very I don't know twentieth century uh, atheistic like technocrat scientist kind of way like he just doesn't see what's wrong with one or maybe a he's like an android who wants to understand what it means to be human and that's why he's always like trying to understand human nature and everything <laughs> speculating about like you know his language human nature maybe you know he's actually you know maybe instead of a human who wants to be a machine he's like actually an android or you know uh, true but and yet yeah his academic work has only been of value to computers yeah, exactly. It's, it's like, like it has no Pinocchio, Pinocchio <laughs> story, which uh, trying to be. Yeah, um, he just wants to be a yeah. real boy. Although he obviously has aging technology, like Bicentennial Man. So uh, <laughs> he must. He must. He's Is still Noam going. Chomsky married? Yeah, he got re he was married for like several decades for decades and then got divorced and then married some. Uh, he got married again in like 2014. So when he was like in his 80s. Wow. Yeah, he got it. He got himself like a Hell Gazette, you know. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Getting a younger, younger wife. Um, Interesting. You know, um, I mean, uh, Valeria, age, age Valeria gap discourse. Wasserman. I don't know. Uh, uh, -oh. uh <laughs> Is it problematic? How young is she? I mean, I feel like she's. It's not problematic. She looks, you know, relatively old. Um, it's you know, probably, I don't think it's probably a, okay. There's an regard. age gap issue there. I think that it's safe. <laughs> uh, but yeah, maybe we can start to wrap mm -hmm. up. Is there any other kind of final thoughts of, you know, 
Chomsky, yeah. where where the influence he still exerts today uh, will. Um, yeah, well, I've just been reading through um, some uh, articles uh, using Chomsky's theories to prove the inimitability of the of the Quran. Um, <laughs> you know, I just uh, I just I might have Googled uh, Chomsky Quran uh, just to see mm-hmm. what came up and. Uh, it does not disappoint. There's a lot of there's a lot of material here uh, talking about um, yeah. Uh, in the context of defining what linguistic fitra, Chomsky postulated that humans demonstrate a general ability to acquire language. According to Chomsky's hypothesis on innateness, language acquisition would be difficult or even impossible without an innate grammar. How do we come to have such a rich and specific knowledge or such intricate systems of belief and understanding when the evidence available to us is so meager? As such, there is a system of principles, uh, quote, system of principles, conditions, and rules that are elements and properties of all human languages, the essence of human languages, that constitute the threshold of language acquisition and can be referred to as a universal grammar. The mere existence of language universal supports the hypothesis that these universal rules and language parameters are innate. Universality in this sense implies innateness because many of the similarities between languages can be adequately explained by their having a common origin. This view, adopted by innatist psycholinguistics, is commensurate with, with that of the fitra proposed in the Quran. God gifted language as we experience it to Adam and Eve and their offspring. Language, therefore, is uniquely human. Eh, maybe dolphins? I don't know. But, uh, hmm. yeah, I mean, the Quran does say that God taught Adam's speech. I believe in uh, Surah al-Rahman. I forget the, the verse, but that is, that's compatible. I really think that, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's facing his mortality... You know, mm-hmm. I think you should consider it, Chomsky. If you're listening, I think he should become heart. the first. He could open redeem him. He could lot. redeem himself. He could definitely redeem himself from I, being I mean, an would have to. Well, his sins would all be washed away if he embraced yeah. Islam. So, like, I would then defend him until he did something. Else but, annoying. but if I may, um, there are some uh, political ideological sins that he's going to have to atone for as well. So, I'm going to have to ask that that Noam Chomsky become like the first internationally famous Islamo-Marxist uh, revolutionary. Uh, yeah, Islamo-Gauchist. Yeah, he should go uh, He should go back to France, uh, or well, I guess he was in uh, the Netherlands for that debate with Foucault, but he should, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, take up his, his beef with, with the French again. Uh, yeah, and, he uh, should. He should get yeah. rid of I mean, that would probably be, for, some, for you know, Macron's France, uh, that would be yeah. really uh, aggravating to... You know, face a. Uh, well, he would be a true, yeah, Islamogatis, or however they pronounce it. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I've just been seeing it it being hashtagged, so uh, I don't know, but yeah, that's their new, that's their new big, that's basically like their version of um, the regressive left or like mm, you know, SJWs okay. or like the the woke or whatever. They I, just see, call them I see. I see. leftists. Um, oh yeah, Islamo leftists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So yeah. yeah. I mean, um, I think that Chomsky could do, like, you know, uh, I think he could do a lot of good for Islam if he converted. Um, I think that he could possibly convert the Capo Fash House crew and maybe some other ancillary podcasters, uh, mm-hmm. like, you know, but... It's a tall order, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> he, yeah, he needs to make Tauba and, like, you know, just... Like return to Allah, and because uh, I mean it's what he wants. I mean, like it's this is uh, 
what his theory's been pointing to this whole time. He claims to have read the Quran like in the seventies or whatever and tried mm-hmm. to learn Arabic, but mm. I don't believe him. Yeah, it doesn't seem like he I mean, the, knows any the, languages besides the English. The Quran is the most pretended to have been read book like <laughs> uh, in like human history. Sure, um, sure. But um, um might be up there but, with the Bible. Yeah, that's probably true. The Bible's harder but to I, read. I, I, it's not as uh, well constructed. You can't read it backwards yeah, and Bible's have a, a satisfying experience. It's not yeah, palindromic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Bible's yeah. definitely up there. I would say it's 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 uh, yeah. I well, think it's a slog like, uh, through in the Book of Judges, as inspiring as it is, um, and instructive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. The question is like, does having a greater population of Christians mean that the Bible is more pretended to have been read, or like? Does having a larger population of Christians mean that, you know, there's more people who will pretend to have read it? So, or, oh, you know. They're the, probably, you know, probably the more opposite. people there are, the more like, people have pretended to read it and haven't. Yeah. Although you'd think, like, the more Christians, like, they would actually want to read it, whereas Christians are often the ones who pretend to have read the Quran and learned about how violent it is. Well, with Christianity, like, oh. you know, with Christianity, I think you, you kind of have, like, super spreaders, you know, who basically mm-hmm. they yeah. read it and then but they get everybody else into it. But to have read the Bible, so... You know, well, yeah, like, I mean, uh, Christians don't, don't pretend to. to read the Quran, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they do, they do. Uh, well, I guess they do, the, yeah, well, you sometimes. know, so that they can talk about how violent it was. Oh, know? yeah, yeah, like I found the passage yeah. about the infidels caught, caught yeah, it. exactly. <laughs> like, I saw the part where it says, kill everything, pretend to be a victim when you're a minority, then once you have a majority, kill. I just want to read, anyway, I just want to read yeah, in his okay, own well, way as a very final quote that just <clears throat> I have staring at me in the screen right now, which uh, will piss everybody off, and, but it's kind of funny. Um, and it sounds very, it's one of the more like LaRouchean type vibe things that Noam Chomsky has ever said. Cause like, like we said, I think there are some stylistic overlaps and like the egos, uh, the inflation mm-hmm. factor of the egos. Anyways, uh, this is from an interview on the like 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination, I guess in 2013. And as you might expect, Chomsky's pissed. Uh, So Daniel Falcone asked him, do you find it odd that the country is, after he listed a bunch of like war crimes like Kennedy did and like how bad he was. So uh, Falcone asked him, do you find it odd that the country is focusing on a 50th anniversary remembrance of the Kennedy assassination? And Chomsky said, Worship of leaders is a technique of indoctrination that goes back to the crazed George Washington cult of the 18th century and on to the truly lunatic Reagan cult of today, both of which would impress Kim Il-sung. The JFK cult is similar. (laughs) What does it mean that popular media treats such a date with such unusual honor? Simply that we live in a deeply indoctrinated society. And I guess we can kind of leave it there that, uh, you know, like the disgusting craze, what George Washington called, I mean, not a hundred percent wrong there. Um, uh, yeah. Well, for one, <laughs> like, still, like yeah, then comparing sure, it to Kimmel's song. That's not like where worship of leaders originates from. I guess right? maybe he means in the U S. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But then, you know, of course it would like impress Kimmel song yeah, doing that like classic. Like, what yeah. are we Soviet Russia? What are we North Korea? Yeah. It's amazing uh, and the how JFK often cult he does that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just, I yeah, mean, yeah, I mean, uh, for um, sure. Uh, yes, but at the uh, same time, like that's kind of uh, showing a lot of, uh, Chomsky's, uh, 
uh, putting a lot yes. of his cards on the table, his counterfactual. That's the yeah, real conspiracy he, theory is that JFK yeah, wasn't he's the worst like president a, ever. And yeah, he, he probably deserved to die. Chance, uh, like, to mean other countries uh, or like other people's views or whatever, you know, like uh, the only thing that I guess he's unequivocally positive about is the PKK uh, and yes. their, uh, you know, based... Anarchism. Their base anarchist uh, vision um, yes. and getting, I mean, um, much like Chomsky, getting critical support from the Pentagon. <laughs> yes. And critical support and encouragement and, uh, yeah, um, basically getting that cosign. Yeah. It's, uh, um, that, that's, uh, well, I'm curious to uh curious to see uh what his his hot takes are gonna i mean i'm not that curious that they're all the same but uh you know maybe he'll get into another controversy you know railing against political correctness or something uh in this this new era of biden this uh this lesser of two evils era that he wanted to conjure into being or he helped yeah well we, we did it we averted like disaster he um, successfully humanity. We defeated yeah, we Hitler. did it. We defeated Hitler. Um, did, uh, he yeah. manufactured the consent of enough uh, disillusioned Bernie Bros to get out to those polls, yes. and uh, we saved mm-hmm. the world from Hitler too. Uh, yeah, we we did it. Wow, we truly are the greatest generation, uh, the second greatest yeah. generation. Um, yeah, because we voted so just for you know just keep on uh, just. And just to paraphrase uh, Chomsky, uh, just uh, yeah. keep doing activism. Build a firewall yeah. in your life between the military industrial complex that you aid in a bet and your political ideology. Um, I really like I really like y- this quote from uh, Christopher Knight relative to that, which is uh, Chomsky may reach for his gun, but the relationship between his science and his politics remains nevertheless a dialectical one. There is no more. Appropriate Ooh. Action. Wah, wah. Uh, <laughs> yes. Oh, that's yeah. great. All right. I think uh, yeah. that. That's a that's a that's a high note to end on. Uh, you know. Yeah. Yeah. When you hear the words anarcho syndicalism, folks, reach for your gun. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or if you hear uh, the, yeah. if you hear the undo, word undo universal the grammar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Undo um, the safety uh, on your Makarov and. Uh, um, watch out for language gens. Definitely uh, don't. Not you're you're the, not a sloppy disk. Don't let any of these people reprogram you. We're not gonna let uh, it happen. Yeah. Contemplate the pen and the eternal olive that uh, you know Law created, um, and <laughs> that Chomsky you know uh, uh, knows about, but tried to sell to the Pentagon. Yeah, it's not cool. Um, no, it's not cool. It's not cool. It's not uh, cool to deny like uh, you know the Harufis and John D their credit for discovering the Adamic language first. Talk about uh, plagiarism. Plagiarism. Uh, mm, yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah. Uh, stay away, kids. Uh, don't, don't, you know, sneak through that gate that he, that he keeps, uh, because there are better things on the other side. Uh, don't fall into the vortex of being Chomsky pilled, uh, as so many of us surely have over the years. But now I think, you know, we could finally expand our imaginations beyond the, I want uh, Chomsky to co- Chomsky you know he likes to go on these these millennial podcasts I think should come on here and read like a long like please execute me slash <laughs> like I'm converting to a slob statement <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. Chomsky you're you're welcome anytime 
Uh, I have a feeling yeah. that if he becomes aware of this, like he will never, we're going to fall in, no, we're going to get blacklisted, he, he ironically. Won't. He won't. Um, no, he yeah, won't. he probably will um, never. Uh, yeah. We have violated, uh, we have crossed many lines, uh, I think, in yeah. our uh, insinuations about Dr. Chomsky. But uh, yes. nonetheless, we would be we would be friendly and civil if he ever does want to come on and defend himself for his grievous uh, counter-revolutionary crimes and subverting yeah. the uh, perfection of a laws language. And or just read a prepared statement uh, that we've written, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> admitting to all that he's done. Um, no, something he um, wrote, he, he'll read of his own volition uh, yeah, okay, out of yeah, a right, deep no. sense uh, of regret for his yeah. wrecking uh, activities. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Spying for the Japanese. Yeah. That was just a slip. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like, exactly. I pretended, like when I pretended we didn't already have that, uh, you know, Rambo versus Bigfoot script copyrighted. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Um, so, yeah. Uh, until next time, folks, stay sussed out by Chomsky and stay vigilant. Peace. Yo, don't just vote.
eyes at malignant cancer from the body politic, but that's just the beginning. Real politics is what you do before and after you push the lever. You have to keep your shoulder to the wheel, engagement, activism, organizing. That's what will make the difference. 